And welcome back to Scream Addicts Hammer Pub. I am Jinx, your co-host, and I am sitting here with Paul Farrell. Paul, tell them you're doing good, man. I'm doing great, actually. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to change it up to great. It's supposed to be good. You're always good. It's... I'm good. I'll go back to good. I apologize. I tried something new. It was it was a bad call. No, we not right on back to you, good. Were, you were hewing close to your Twitter handle. Paul is great. 2,000? 3,000? 2,000? Who knows? It could be any one of those numbers. You know what? Good, great, doesn't matter. Paul, guess what? What's that? We have a guest. That makes me incredibly happy as well. Me too. Returning to the Hammer Pub after I shamelessly, drunkenly pursued him to be a permanent third host, known for the Blade (laughs) Brothers Dragula, Halloween Trick, and So Far So Close, which is currently available on Deku. Paul, let's put our hands together in welcoming back to the show, Michael Verratti. Woo! Well, I am excited to be back. Um, yeah, you know, uh, I, I don't know about permanent guest host, but I love recurring <laughs> guest star. Um, you know, it's sort of like if you watch the old sitcoms of yesteryear, like you kind of want to be like Paul Lind popping into Bewitched rather yeah. than Darren, because you get to come and have the best time and the audience loves you. So <laughs> yeah, that's only fair. no, I felt bad. I, you know, it's funny. I, I always try and listen to the episodes back to, uh, I don't know, uh, find ways that I can improve myself and then forget about by the time I record the next time after. But, you know, when I was listening to that episode back, I was just like, good God, leave the man alone. Just just stop it. <laughs> so I'm sorry. I apologize formally here on the podcast for annoying you constantly about coming back. And yet you did come back. So I got to think that I did something right. Well, I had a blast last time. Uh, I love Hammer, and it was greatly flattering. So, you know, um, chalk it all up. It worked. It worked. Now, can I ask, before we dive into recent watches, what's everybody drinking tonight? Uh, Well, I, knowing I was returning, uh, decided to try and do something on theme with Hammer, because last time I think I had a basic, like, vodka soda. uh, And I kind of scoured the local uh, liquor store, and I brought back Old Rasputin uh, Imperial Stout. It's a it's a dark beer. Um, oh, nice. I, I felt it was adjacent since, you know, Hammer did a Rasputin movie. And uh, why not? It's a lager. I mean, and this is a pub. So why not? Yeah, Rasputin will, uh, that'll be coming up in a week or two, I think, even. So, no, that's yeah, pretty cool. It was one of the four films made in this cycle. In the... I've, uh... In the plague of the zombie cycle, so I've heard Paul actually hates dark beer. Uh, uh, that is up, that is a, a lie, sir. And you I'd know, heard something. You it's, know, it. it's it's either you or me. <laughs> One of us. I uh, I am drinking uh, cast iron oatmeal brown ale uh, by Four Hands Brewery. It's one of my favorite beers, and uh, yeah, I'm, I'm, I've got a got some of that next to me, and I'm I'm ready to go. Okay, fair enough. I. I've got a weird mix here. I've got three glasses awaiting me because I'm just, uh, you know, I, I, I don't want to like constantly interrupt as I do getting up and down and making different drinks. So I have a glass of uh, peach brandy here. Uh, and it's not, can I tell you why I chose it, Paul? It's a, it's, it's a weird thing. Um, I would love for you to tell me. Okay. So I was just browsing around and uh, Mr. Verratti, you might be familiar with this too. <laughs> do you know the brand Paul Masson? Mm, I don't. Okay, I wouldn't have either, except there's this amazing outtake from ages ago that you can find on YouTube of uh, Orson Welles 
basically trying to do a wine commercial for Paul Masson wines, and uh, he he's drunk while doing the commercial, and it is perhaps the funniest thing I've ever seen. It's it's incredible watching Orson Welles trying to get through like this commercial while being completely sloshed on the product. You know, basically he's there to sell, which I think is actually kind of the perfect way to sell it, but I don't know if it ever made it into the actual ad. Ah, the French champagne has always been celebrated for its excellence. Anyway, that was the only reason I picked it up, but I gotta say, peach brandy, actually pretty delicious. Um, yeah, and so I have something called a toasted almond. I made it out of Kahlua and... Uh, De Serono, and uh, I have a salted caramel mudslide. So we'll, uh, we'll see. How... Quite the array, honestly. Yeah, that's that's a fancy setup you got over there. Yeah, it might now, make me sick. I have seen the Orson Welles commercial. I guess I just didn't realize that was the liqueur or brandy that he was selling. But I I was made aware of that incident very early on because I don't know if listeners remember there was a show I think early '90s called The Critic with John Lovitz. It was an animated oh, yeah. show. And they that show famously parodied the Orson Welles commercial, and in the in the show he was doing uh, a commercial for frozen peas, and <laughs> and they did all of these. He's like full of chalk, good frozen penis. No, wait, that's wrong. You know, <laughs> and uh, when I I thought that was a great joke, and someone was like, well, you know, it's based on this, and I eventually saw the actual clip, and I I honestly think that no matter how much you parody it it's nothing's better than the real thing no no there's yeah there's nothing better than uh <laughs> paul you've got to see it like there are yeah three I... or four different takes that are cut together and i think at about you know I, I i think he's meant to open the commercial by going aha you know and by the time <laughs> you get to the third or fourth take he's like aha. oh man that sounds <laughs> glorious it, it rem- <laughs> do either of you watch uh schitt's creek the show Shit's Greek. I just started it. There's is a this the oh, wine commercial with Catherine O'Hara. Yeah, that's that's what I was thinking of as you were describing this. Come taste the difference good fruit can make in your wine. You'll remember the experience, and you'll remember the name Herb Irvlinger, Bert Herngeif, Irv Herblinger, Bing Livehanger, Liveling. Bert Herkern. Okay, I need to see that. Uh, because yeah, I Catherine, Catherine O'Hara. O'Hara does basically like a, a bit uh, in season one, uh, kind of like that, where she's doing like a wine commercial, but she's getting like sloshed. And so like by the end of it, she can barely, it's it's very funny. Um, but uh, yeah, no, I'm, I'm, I'm right when we're done here, I'm going to go find that commercial. <laughs> <laughs> it's so great. All right, uh, let's go ahead and dive into our recent watches. Mr. Verratti, what have you seen in the past seven days or so that you would recommend to people genre-wise? Well, genre-wise, I have actually been on this journey recently uh, where I've been re-watching a lot of the 1980s into early 90s Heisei-era Godzilla movies, um, which this... This just sort of kind of came up between my dear friend as well as my frequent cinematographer and VFX guy, Andrew Sepperly. Uh, we like to kind of like lob movies at each other that kind of are influencing like things we're working on, which is about as uh, direct as I can be without, you know, I can't say much more beyond that. Uh, and it just so happens that it, we kind of started on this train while Kong versus Godzilla is coming out, but it wasn't influenced <laughs> by that. It was something, it was, we're on something else totally. But, we started kind of 
texting back and forth, like, have you seen this one? Have you seen this one? And we realized that, like, from the Godzilla 85 through, like, 95, those movies are wacky. Like, in a bizarre, metaphysical sort of, they're, like, 18 movies in, and they're just, like, it's not just enough to have a giant monster smash across Tokyo. There's got to be more. And uh, the most recent one I watched was Godzilla versus King uh, Ghidorah, and it's a time travel movie. There's like a Terminator homage. Uh, <laughs> there's like evil capitalists come from the future to stop the economic prosperity of Japan. And it's so outrageous that you're like, oh, wait, I guess Godzilla's going to show up at some point too. But like, I don't even know that it matters as much. Like, because it's just so bananas and i'm living for it uh i i I, before that i watched godzilla versus biolante and there's like a timothy dalton james bond movie that happens in the middle of that that i'm just sort of all about uh so i'm enjoying this 80s era godzilla kind of journey and that's what i'm on right now that's amazing i you know it's weird i I adore Godzilla, but I've only seen like, you know, a movie here and a movie there. I feel like I need to start at the very beginning and sort of blaze through them, which I thought the Criterion set with all the Showa era stuff was going to be the perfect way to do that. And I bought it and it's been sitting on a shelf, like staring at me every time I pass it. Like, when? When's going to be my time? Well, you know, I, I just haven't gotten into them yet, but I did. It's funny. Have you ever heard of Zone Fighter? Yes. It's uh, it's a TV show, right? Yes. Yeah, I had no idea that this thing existed until uh scott foy who was on the show before he he delights in finding like these super obscure uh you know movies of all sorts you know uh b c z grade films you know bizarre and obscure television series and whatnot and he sent me a gif of godzilla and i was like again i haven't seen everything but i knew that this one was a little off it was a little different i was like wait what is this from and he was like oh it's from zone fighter and i was like oh what's zone fighter (laughs) <laughs> and he told me it's like it's a television show about like a a very Ultraman-esque kind of hero, but it was set within the world of like all of the, uh, you know, the, the, the Showa creatures like, uh, you know, you had Godzilla and Ghidorah and so on and so forth. And <laughs> Godzilla was a frequent co-star. Sometimes they would fight. Sometimes they would team up and tackle other baddies. And the cool thing is that it's it, apparently it's actually set in canon with the show era movies. In fact, the whole series takes place in between two of the films. Now, here's the super crazy thing. Do you remember when uh, Michael Doherty's uh, King of the Monsters came out like two years ago? And yeah. so, and which I... I go back and forth on that movie. Like, I think it's beautifully made. I think the score is one of the best damn film scores I've heard in ages. I think all of the monster stuff is amazing. It kind of falters when it comes to the human stuff, but I I still like the movie. I'm a sucker for, you know, big kaiju flicks like that. But there was that moment in King of the Monsters when they basically find Godzilla's lair. And it's kind of like, wait a second, Godzilla has a pad? Like, Godzilla just hangs out somewhere? That's kind of cool. You know, I don't remember that in any of the older movies. Maybe it was a thing in the older movies. But in Zone Fighter, he actually has like a Batman-esque cave with metal doors. And whenever he is ready to help out the the the, the title character, the metal doors open, almost like uh, by way of a garage door opener. And Godzilla races out, just like running, like he's the Flash, to basically help save the day. It is the most bizarre, bonkers, wonderful thing I've ever seen. And honestly, that's that's pretty much the uh, 
the only reason I think I need to dive into Godzilla proper because I need to get to that series and watch it in full. Unfortunately, it's not really widely available. Weirdly enough, for all the stuff that's available on Godzilla here in the States, Zone Fighter is not. I, I may or may not have <clears throat> found a you know bootleg online well a lot of the uh a lot of the the post showa era movies are sort of hit or miss in the u.s which is why i think i overlooked a lot of these and i'm so uh enjoying discovering them because they kind of are hitting that sort of weird culty bizarre itch that i i i was missing like i i enjoy a kaiju movie but I think I like this era that just leans into the gonzo even more. And, uh, you know, you mentioned in King of the Monsters how it kind of lags with, with the people. And I'm one of the weird kaiju viewers who actually really enjoys the people stories if they're done in a certain way. And this, this Heisei era of Godzilla, I'm almost like more invested in the people stories than the kaiju because they're doing crazy <laughs> stuff. They're like, oh, we have to travel back in time. Just do this or we have to, you know, take the DNA of this monster to create a plant that will like cure blah, 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 blah. And you're like, what is happening? And I, <laughs> I, I love it. I love it. Now, can I ask before we uh, before we move on? I, I for whatever reason, you know, I mentioned Scott Foy. So I have to ask whenever this comes up, whenever uh, I think of it, even uh, I have to recommend if nobody has seen this. Have you ever come across a movie called Golden Bat? Golden Bat. No, I don't think so. Oh my god. Okay. I will... I gotta figure out a way to get you a copy of the movie. Uh, I don't know how I can do that in COVID land right now. I'm not gonna go into a post office, but maybe there's a link online that I can send you where... Uh... Okay, basically, it is one of the greatest movies ever made. If you imagine, like, 60s and 70s era, like, Showa-era superhero movies... But sort of uh, put into the Cronenberg-like fly teleporter pod with Universal Monster movies, Golden Bat is what comes out in the other pod. Like, it, it's one of the greatest films I've ever seen. It's amazing, and nobody knows about it because it's not available to view anywhere here in the U.S. It took somebody ripping a laser disc and doing the subtitles themselves for people to be able to watch this, and it's been passed around like crazy, but it is... Uh, it's just absolutely amazing. Paul has seen it. Paul, please back me up on this. Yeah, Golden Bat is great. Um, it's it's exactly. Have you ever seen the movie? Uh, this is also a little obscure, but I guess it's. I think it's less obscure than Golden Bat. Have you ever seen the Ship of Monsters? It's like a 1960 Mexican sci-fi film. No, but now I'm like making a list right over here. Oh like, yeah, Ship of Monsters is really special. It's like a spaceship from another planet. Um, with like from an all female planet who are trying to collect male specimens to repopulate their planet. So they have like four or five crazy male aliens that are like these monsters on their ship and it lands and they meet a cowboy. And then like that cowboy is going to be like the earth specimen, but then all of the monsters escape the ship and the cowboy has to catch all of the monsters. And it's, it's a Spanish film. It's completely bizarre over the top with like the effects kind of it's kind of doctor who-ish in some ways with its effects and makeup and and kind of that that shoddy sort of low budget attempted sci-fi but it's incredibly charming um and you've been holding out on me i i i have no idea what this is oh it's great i actually got to see a, a theatrical screening of it at a fantastic fest in like 2019 um but it's 
it's something special. Uh, it's it's out there. I don't know. I don't know what it's like. I'm sure there's a DVD or something. Um, but it it has Golden Bat vibes. Is the reason I brought that up. Is that's like the only other movie I can think of that kind of like remotely reminds me of the tone of Golden Bat. Um, but Golden Bat is is great. Actually, it's one of my kids' favorite movies now. <laughs> I love <laughs> they that. love it. Um, but yeah, it's just it's completely insane, and uh, he has this like. He's he's like a skeleton superhero with a golden staff and he flies and he just cackles and he's kind of terrifying in some ways but like also he's your hero so it's just it's it's very bizarre and again endearing and charming and it's exactly what you want out of a movie like that. Uh well I'm sold. <laughs> he does do this weird thing where whenever and I kind of wish every superhero did it. Whenever he takes off to fly, like, you know, that moment whenever, uh, like, Superman will lean close to the ground and then just leap into the air and fly away. And, you know, Neo kind of does the same thing when you see the ground around him kind of, uh, you know, distort and disrupt before he takes off. There, there's, there's always that bracing moment before they take to the skies, right? Golden Bat does that, but he makes this sound like it physically, like, pains him. Like, it sounds like it hurts for him to take off and fly. <laughs> yeah, like, he, he'll lean down and then take the skies, and he's like, <laughs> Well, it's got to it's gotta have hurt, you think. And, you know, he's shedding the chains of gravity. There's got to be something. <laughs> um, also, I would like to point out, this is my second appearance on the show, and the second, and the second time we've mentioned Superman. Like, every, every time I visit, does, does Superman have to come up? Is that, like, the... Uh... Yeah, I think that's... We should write that down to make sure that that's touched upon every episode. You know, we could spend the next half hour talking about all the recent horror movies we watched, you know, recently in the last week. Or we could just settle in and talk about the Snyder Cut. Uh, (laughs) It's entirely up to you two. I don't care. I'm fine either way. Uh, I don't know enough about it. Like, that's not even me, like, you know, trying to skirt around the subject. I know people on the Internet are very passionate. And I know some people are very upset about that for the same reason and i'm just kind of like watch it if you want to don't if you don't and yep. uh move on because like <laughs> as you can see i don't really prescribe to any like current modes of what i have to or have not to watch i'm i'm in the midst of 1980s japan right now so everything else that's <laughs> going on is is sort of like secondary to me i got you paul how about you what have you uh what have you seen this last week uh, yeah, I've I've been watching a lot of stuff, um, and I'm trying to remember what I talked about last time I was on, so I'll just I'll err on the side of caution and go with some things I saw in the last couple of days. Uh, the first one I watched was called The Unseen uh, from 1980. Uh, it's been on my watch list for quite a while. Uh, have Have either of you seen this one? Uh, directed by Danny Steinman, right? Yes. Yeah, it's. Um, yeah, Danny Steinman, and uh, it's oh, who's um, Barbara? It's Barbara Bach. Barbara Bach. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Mrs. And, Ringo. Uh, yes, right. And it, 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 I wanted to watch it for a long time. I just never, you know, I just never got around to it. And um, one day, I was, I was just kind of like perusing my collection. And I was like, oh, this is an '80s movie I haven't seen, and. Uh, so I popped it in. I I had a really good time with this one. Uh, it's it's weird though. It's like on one hand, it's this very sort of like careful, measured, methodical kind of character driven movie. Um, and on the other hand, it's like 
incredibly uncomfortable exploitation sleaze. <laughs> like it is, it runs the gamut on <laughs> what is what is acceptable on on film, and it goes to some places that are kind of, I mean, kind of tasteless, but in a way that I wasn't. I wasn't offended by it. I mean, nothing really offends me in movies at this point. Um, but I could see some people watching it and feeling like so uncomfortable with what they're seeing. Um, but man, I just, I just kind of loved it on, on, on the level of it being high art grindhouse trash. Um, I thought it was, it was very well made. Um, the performances, uh, Sydney Lasik, uh, the character actor, who's in a bazillion movies uh, plays, I I guess, I, yeah, he's the villain. Um, that's not really a spoiler. Uh, if you watch the movie it, and you didn't pick that up, then you've probably never seen a horror movie before. Um, <laughs> he is just the sleaziest, sweatiest, grossest man. Um, and everything he does just unnerves you. And he, and he gives it his all, like the performance he's giving is, is, quality it's not he's not hamming it up he's actually i mean there's a scene in this movie that is like right out of psycho um where he's essentially addressing his dead father as if he's his dead father's corpse as if he's still alive and then doing the father's voice just like uh anthony perkins would um and it's it's very chilling and it's it's deeply disturbing and it happens earlier in the enough in the movie where you start to wonder like is this sort of an unsung kind of psycho-esque film before it gets to its final act and it and it goes someplace that is like bonkers you know exploitation but um I do feel like it's one that I've heard of. It's one I've heard people talk about but I do think there's probably some a good amount of horror fans that haven't seen this one um, and it's definitely worth checking out. I, I I had a good time with it. Rock on! So that was the unseen. Okay, the I'll unseen. check that out. Why does yeah. that sound like it should be a uh, a Scream Factory release? Uh, uh, Kino Lorber put it out, right? Yeah, Kino and Scorpion put it out mm. too. I think Scorpion did it originally, and then Kino reissued it, and it's on uh, Ronin Flix. I think you got it on Amazon too, but. Uh, Ronin Flix is a good site to check out for that stuff. Right, um, Gotta love Kino Lorber. I just bought something from them earlier tonight. Uh, I don't know if either of you have seen them, but apparently there were a pair of uh, supernatural TV movies back in the late 60s, early 70s. In fact, uh, one of them was the first, apparently, supernatural TV movie called Fear No Evil. And... Oh, I forget what the other one is called, but it's uh, it's basically an initial movie and it's sequel, both starring uh, Louis Jordan, uh, and they sound amazing. So Kino put them out, and I thought, well, hey, they're usually a sign of quality, and this sounds cool. I will pick them up. Uh, I own that that double disc. Nice. Which one am I forgetting? It's Fear No Evil and something uh, something evil. Oh yeah, I know something uh, something something dark side. Uh, I can't think. Oh, of... it's it's ritual of evil, ritual of evil, ritual of evil. Yes, yeah. <clears throat> I just love the idea that there was this character that Jordan played that could have maybe led into you know an entire series of films you know surrounding him. Like where where was his cold check, the Night Stalker after those movies? You know, he probably should have had that. But uh... 
and, and well, I mean, I assume that the movies are good. Maybe they're not. Maybe after I watch them, I'll be like, yeah, yeah, fair, fair enough. No, I, I think they're wonderful. Uh, Fear No Evil especially is really great. Uh, you also get uh, Linda Day George is in it uh, as, as the female lead. And it's all about sort of like a haunted mirror, but not exactly. Um, and it goes to some bold places for a uh, a movie of the week of that era. I, I really enjoy both of those, and I'm glad that Kino Lorber uh, rescued and restored them for a new audience, because you're right, there's a lot of that kind of Kolchak zhuzh, um, and they're great. I mean, just also to just watch Louis Jordan uh, chain smoke and <laughs> like waffle on about supernatural dealings is worth it for 80 minutes. Love it. There is something about 70s made-for-TV horror movies. I mean, there's nothing quite like them, I don't think. You know, not 70s theatrical horror films, not not any sort of uh, horror film that came after that. They, they, they just kind of exist in their own perfect kind of bubble. As soon as you see one, you know what they are, and they're kind of amazing. I... I'm I'm one of the rare cats, I think, who absolutely adores uh, Look What's Happened to Rosemary's Baby. Uh, you have to divorce it from the fact that it's a sequel to a masterpiece, but you know, kind of, kind of just taken on its own. I think that movie is absolutely incredible. Well, it's a lot of fun. And I think, you know, speaking to sort of my, my taste for bizarre excess, uh, you know, in a very different way than the eighties Godzilla movies, look what happened to Rosemary's baby really, really knows what it is. And it like revels in the absurdity of itself. Um, that whole scene with Patty Duke on the bus is just everything. <laughs> <laughs> I love that so much. And I love how they, you know, it was so damn smart how it was broken up into books as they were reading the gospel or witnessing it, you know. And uh, uh, the lead, is it Stephen McHattie from Pontypool? Uh, yeah. As a very young man, as a very handsome young man, too, like not a line on that face yet, you know. Um, the dance sequence with him with his face painted white is just kind of utterly hypnotic and just kind of fascinating to watch it's it's such a damn good film and i just i don't understand why it hasn't gotten more love and again the 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 only thing that i can think of is that you know it's only sin is the fact that it's you know it's kind of in the shadow of a masterpiece you know other than that i think it's amazing well it's interesting right you know we talk about sort of the online discourse that happens within the horror community and among horror fans about franchises about sequels and i've always been of the mind that i would rather a sequel take a big swing and go out there and do something really different and bizarre than play it too safe and i know that there's like two different minds of this like you know if i like the original movie i kind of want more of the original movie Sure, sure, and I get that, and we all have those films that like we we love for that reason, but also a film is a forever document, so if you sort of want the aesthetic of the original film, that's always there to you. I would rather have, if you're going to follow up Rosemary's Baby, I don't want another pregnant woman in an apartment building because it's already been done and done exceptionally. Let's get weird. I mean, and I think that especially the change of medium allowed for that because they had to do different things because they weren't allowed kind of the, the breathing room that a motion picture at the theater would have. And, and, and you see it with the Stepford Wives sequels that were made for TV too. They got real bizarre with those. And I love those. Yeah. Yeah. I just, I, I 11 and TV movies, you know, you could just the extensions to the worlds he created. You can do no wrong. Where, where was our sliver follow up? Like where was the NBC made for TV movie that followed up that probably wouldn't have made much sense, but I would have watched it. 
Um, it would have been great. Like, can you imagine who would have been in that at the time? It would have been. It's like who Shannon... been, Yeah, like who would have been mid '90s TV <laughs> version Sharon Stone? Like who and Billy Baldwin? I don't know. Oh, Shannon Tweed in Sliver Two, Silver Knights. <laughs> you know. <laughs> That, I would watch it. So I'd Andrew Stevens, Andrew Stevens <laughs> would be the Billy Baldwin analog. I'm guessing. So. Oh my God! I want that now. I'm like, come on. <laughs> I I adore made-for-TV horror films, especially of the '70s and '80s. I mean, there there's so many great ones, and so much, so many of them took some really interesting, like you you were saying, interesting risks. And even some of the later ones, like I think When a Stranger Calls Back is a great movie. Oh yeah. Um, And, you know, that was made for TV, but it's still it's just as interesting, you know, as any other (laughs) theatrical film of its time. So it's yeah, I think I think that's a lost art in a way, in some ways. Is it kind of is it sacrilege to say that I kind of prefer when a stranger calls back to the original? I, I, I like it as a as a whole. Not, 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 not more. Okay, there is nothing in the sequel that equals the first 15 minutes of the original movie. Right, yeah. That aside, overall, I think yeah. it's a better film. Yeah. I, do, I do think the sequence that is supposed to sort of be the mirroring or the bookend of the original movie's opening with J- Jill Sholin uh, in the house is played mm-hmm. so well. Yeah. And it's, it subverts what you're expecting from the original movie that... They came back, you know, with with everything swinging, and I do appreciate that. And the yeah, whole for sure. man painted into the wall thing oh, freak, yeah. freaked me out for years. Terrifying. <laughs> the brick. I mean, was there latex involved there? Like, what was going on with that guy? I love it. I love it so much. I um, so I saw something this past week that was kind of Paul's fault in a way, in a roundabout uh-huh. way. Paul, I'm blaming you or okay. thanking you. We'll we'll see how it goes. I... So on this podcast, we were talking um, – actually, Mr. Ferrati, it might have been on your episode. We were talking about what we thought that modern Hammer would look like, aside from actual modern Hammer. You know, I think Sleepy Hollow was mentioned. And at a certain point, Paul mentioned that The Boy, the 2016 film, was very much kind of like a modern Hammer film. And I was like, yeah, The Boy. I love that movie. I haven't seen it in ages. Like two years or three years. I don't know. Right. So I decided to rewatch it, and it occurred to me that – because of the pandemic and uh, because of a couple of other movies kind of taking my attention away during those first couple of weeks after it was released, I didn't get around to watching the boy sequel that came out in late February of last year. It's called Brahms the Boy 2. Have either of you seen this? Uh, yes. And interestingly enough, it's because of exactly what you're saying. I love the boy. I also agree with Paul. It is 100%, you know, like British manner gothic horror it, it, it has that hammer vibe through and through and i somehow just because of, of, of the global situation allowed brahms to slip by me um and so one night i rewatched the original <laughs> and, and, and then watched the sequel right after and uh they're very very different beasts and, and this is like you know i i don't know that the sequel worked for me but to stay true to my word of what I said mere moments ago, it took a swing and did something totally different. And in that way, I have to admire it. But the one thing my partner and I were very obsessed with is uh, the amount of outfits that Brahms has, the doll. <laughs> like, that that doll is better dressed than any human being <laughs> I know. It's like, it's, it's like, 
upsetting. There's the scene when like Katie Holmes is looking out the window and the kid's sitting outside with the doll, and the doll's got this like Gore-Tex jacket on. I'm like, what the fuck? Those are so expensive. Like who who's making these for this little doll? I don't understand. You know, given the uh, given the subject matter of the second film and where it ultimately goes, I wish we had had kind of this, you know, just an aside with Brahms dressing himself. Like, how great would that have been? You know, <laughs> just kind of trying out things in a mirror, deciding what worked or didn't work for that day. Uh, Paul, have you seen it? I, I haven't yet. I, I, I mean, kind of everything you all said is is true for me as well. I I just missed it and I just haven't circled back to it yet well, it came out at the worst possible time because not only did it come out a stone's throw away from the uh the damn you know from the first lockdown really but it also came out right around the time of uh the invisible man and lodge and out of those you know out of those three those were the two that kind of you know those were right. the priorities and so i was gonna i swear i was gonna watch uh, the boy too because of how much i love the first one but you know there was something about the trailers that just didn't catch me and so as a result i didn't watch it and uh yeah, so I did. I, uh, you know, uh, like you mentioned, I, <laughs> I rewatched the original and found that I still love the movie. If not, I might even love it a little more now. I, I, I think it's such a perfect little switchblade of a movie. I think it's great. Um, yeah. Then I popped in Brahms, and yeah, I, I, I was instantly put at ease by the fact that it's the same team that did the first movie, same writer, same director. And, uh, you know, it had a great cast. It's got a great look. Uh, and it just, uh, yeah, yeah, uh, Mr. Brody, like I said, it, it takes a swing. I don't know if it connected for me. It, it's, you know, it's, it's a very well-made movie for what it is, but it kind of upsets everything that I liked about the original movie. You know, uh, I, I, I love that the first movie appeared to be, you know, about the supernatural. And then you have that kind of rug pulled out from under you in the final act. And it turns out it wasn't. And then you have the second movie kind of strolling in going like, well, actually, <laughs> you know, and it's just kind of like, and Paul, you, Paul, surely you've seen the trailer. You, yeah, I mean, I'm, 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 gonna, okay. I'm aware that they go in that direction. Yeah. Yeah. And it's such a weird thing. And then at the end of it there, okay, I won't go into that, but there's, I will say this: If you buy the disc, Paul, what am I saying? You already own the disc, don't you? I, you know, I don't yet. Which is what the this, hell? which is weird for me. I will you give you that. Everything. I, I know. I buy a, a way too many movies. I'll I'll pick it up. I'll buy it just based on this conversation. Okay, fair enough. Uh, when you get to the end, and you inevitably ask yourself, why did they go that route? Go to the deleted ending, the alternate ending, and they make a better choice for how the movie mm. should have ended. And it's a very okay. small, small difference, but it makes all the difference in the world. But overall, I didn't hate it. And in fact, I would watch a third one. I feel like the series kind of needs a third one now because there's mythology laid out in the second one that kind of needs to be fleshed out now. You know, I'm, I'm two movies in. They need to bring it home. Uh, but given what the box office was for that second movie, I'm not sure that we're going to get it. But nevertheless, I uh, it was fun watching them as a double feature. I'll say that. But just kind of lower your expectations a little bit for the second one. Sure. Other than that, uh, Mr. Roddy, uh, anything else you'd like to talk about? Anything else you've seen recently? Uh, oh gosh! I mean, really, what have I seen recently beyond the Godzilla movies? I well, I will say that on Valentine's Day we were kind of sitting here trying to figure out what to watch, and we ran through the usual choices of like, should we watch My Bloody Valentine or X Ray or Valentine? 
And uh, I love all of those movies, but was kind of feeling sort of the inertia of watching them every year. And um, we settled on Fifty Shades of Grey because I hadn't seen it. (laughs) And um, I will tell you, like going into that movie with no knowledge of the story, I there were many times I felt I was clutching my pearls because I was like, (laughs) this is uh, this is everything I wanted it to be. I feel like. I was not disappointed. I wanted an episode of Dynasty with some like handcuffs, and I got it. So, yeah. <laughs> That's awesome. You know, it's funny. I I have not seen the movie. I've seen the trailer. Uh, I've I've heard things about the movie. I haven't gotten around to it yet. It's it's not even that I'm opposed to watching them. Uh, I I like the actors uh, in in the entire trilogy, but I just I for whatever reason I haven't seen it yet. But I did hear somebody say that. You know, they, they, they knew what they were getting into watching the movie, and yet they got the distinct feeling watching the first act of the first film that it was going to turn into a horror film. You know, it never did, but... It it does feel like it, you know, because Christian Grey as a character is presented in almost very a methodical way, where to the point where you are sort of left wondering in the, in the course of the first movie, why does she fall for this guy? Because he's kind of almost like one degree away from a serial killer. And yes. and yet, like he his his whole character arc is he's so committed to the concept of consent, at least by his words, by his actions. That's a totally different discussion. But um, it's just sort of like he's more fleshed out both in in pro and con ways than any other character in the movie. That I guess that like she on she of course is going to fall for him because he's got the most layers of everybody anybody else we've met. <laughs> at, at, at least until Kim Basinger shows up in Fifty Shades Darker, which thank you everybody. You know. <laughs> <laughs> it was a necessary addition. I did watch those movies, and and yes, I agree with everything you're saying. <laughs> My wife and I, uh, we love watching movies like that. It, it's just fun to, yeah, to just kind of sit back and enjoy the ride uh those movies you know and he is well and you can tell that this is all sort of deriving from twilight fan fiction because he definitely feels like a vampire in a lot of ways right um but like that it's sort of the weird complexity set against this relatively straightforward movie um that kind of I don't know. It's like weirdly engrossing. And when, when the first one ended, I, I was just kind of like, Oh, we got to watch the other ones now. Like we have to, like we have to keep going with this and and see where it all goes. And it does go to some pretty wild places. Um, It does. Well, and I have to say when Marcia Gay Harden and Kim Basinger square off in 50 shades darker, that to me was like, I, I I would have sat through two and a half hours. (laughs) (laughs) Agreed. Agreed. Um, but I will say, honestly, since we brought up these, well, I brought up these movies, like I'm acting like it came up organically and it was my fault. <laughs> um, uh, no, I also this past week uh, did, along with everybody on the Internet, it seems like I saw Barb and Star go to Vista Del Mar. And, oh, yes. Uh, yeah. I absolutely loved it. Uh, but, you know, connecting it back to Fifty Shades of Grey, uh, Jamie Dornan, of course, is the male lead of both of these movies. And getting to see him play and have fun in Barb and Star and uh, just really enjoying, you know, being in a Kristen Wiig uh, comedy and really owning it. It was I, I thought it was a breath of fresh air. I got to see him as an actor with new eyes because Christian Grey is such a serious character. And yeah. 
I think that it's easy in the pop culture zeitgeist to sort of cast someone into a role and we forever think of them as that person. And then watching him in like a Hawaiian shirt and dancing and singing on the beach in this slapstick comedy, I was like, oh, I really, really like him. Yeah. Not, not that I didn't before, but it was just sort of like it recontextualized him for me. And now I want him to be in every movie. You know, it's curious. This is the second week in a row that Jamie Dornan has come up. <laughs> well, yeah, because I talked about uh, Barb and Star last week because, um, m- man, that movie, that movie is like it, it, just to a T my what I want out of a comedy. Like it, it's everything to me. I lo- I watched it. I rented it and I watched it twice in 24 hours because I was like, I need to just keep keep seeing this as much as I possibly can. And and I agree totally with you about uh, Jim Jordan. Like I I will never see him the same way again, and I can't wait to see him in more movies now. Um, I I think it's yeah. I mean, you you really get a sense of his range. Um, and I think that happens unfortunately a lot to actors. I think it was a really smart decision to to appear in uh, Barb and Star. I think I I hope that movie is incredibly successful. Um, cause with, with streaming, it's so hard to know how successful movies are anymore. Um, but like, I hope that people sort of see him in this and kind of maybe re redefine what, what kind of actor he is because Heather was talking last week about how she's not like a huge fan of his and will this be the movie that wins her over? And I was like, I think it will a hundred percent. And I think not only that, I think it might make you like him more in those other movies. Yeah, because it shows his his ability and range in uh, yeah. in ways that I think if we just kept seeing him sort of in serious dramas, we may not have seen. Because people who didn't who uh, knew him from The Fall, for example, he plays a very sadistic serial killer in that movie, and then kind of tonally shifts over to Christian Grey, which is a different character, but they kind of exist in a sort of uh, a, 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 the same color palette, if you will. Yeah. Whereas Edgar in Barb and Star Go to Vista Del Mar is just a, a total sh- shift. And what I really, you know, because the people who made that movie are known comedians, and this is what they do, in a lot of ways, Jamie Dornan to me is the standout because we know Kristen Wiig is funny. We mm-hmm. know that we're going to get, you know, this from from these these actors. We know if Vanessa Bayer's in it or whoever shows up, they're going to do what they do best. So to have someone like him in the movie playing against type and then blowing it out of the water, that's just the cherry on top. Yeah, I agree. All right, Paul, how about you? Have you seen anything else recently? Um, The only other thing I just want to briefly touch on, uh, because it just was so bizarre, is last night um, I got together with some friends and we did like a scener watch where we all watched a movie together uh, from uh, the Dead Ringers podcast. And uh, we watched Between Worlds, the Nicolas Cage movie. <laughs> Have either you guys seen this one? Uh, no, but I'm always down for a cage. So, Oh, yeah. Jinx, have you seen it? <laughs> I No, I've seen the trailer, which I thought looked all right. And then I read like... Somewhat of a non-spoilery review, but it spoiled enough that I was like, what the hell is this? It It is. When you think of like a modern day direct-to-video bonkers Nicolas Cage performance slash movie, that, that's this. <laughs> that This is what you're thinking of. It's this movie. Um, it is wild. Uh, and 
the plot i mean just to give you the plot rundown and i'll be a little bit more spoilery than usual but i mean this is all accomplished in the first like 20 minutes so it's not really that much he plays a trucker like a like a (laughs) greasy trucker who one day pulls off into a truck stop uh sees a woman being strangled saves her runs off with the woman this all happens in like the first five minutes um and then discovers that she was trying to sort of like flatline herself. So that way she could like out of body visit her daughter who's in a coma and convince her daughter's soul to stay inside her daughter's body. And when she does it, Nicholas Cage's wife, who's also dead, this is established again within the first five minutes, her soul comes back from the afterlife and jumps into this woman's daughter's body. Um, and then you have a movie where Nicolas Cage is being pursued by two women, uh, uh, the mother of this girl, and then the girl who's now possessed by his dead wife's spirit, basically. Uh, it is bonkers. It is wild. It, Cage is, I don't know what he's doing, but I love every second of it. Um, he makes the strangest choices uh, that you could possibly make in every single scene. His costuming is nuts uh it's it's a sub 90 minute movie it flies by um it it will never stop being just like a train wreck of a plot um it's so convoluted uh yeah it's it's kind of gross it's kind of it's incredibly inappropriate uh, but it's just, I, I laughed a lot. I, I can't, I mean, I was very entertained by it. I can't say that it was good, but I can't, I, if, if people enjoy that sort of off the wall, modern day cage-ness that he sometimes brings to movies, this is definitely one that you'll want to check out. <laughs> I'm sold. Yeah, I'm going to watch it now. I might watch it tonight, in fact. Yeah, it's, it's something, man. It was, it was something. Okay, we are fifty minutes in. Uh, I guess just uh, real quick, I'll mention that I watched one last movie here. Uh, did I watch it last night? The night before? It, it was sometime recently. Anyway, I caught Paul W. S. Anderson's new movie, Monster Hunter. Uh, VOD'd it and watched it, and uh, I, I, I don't know how you all feel about his movies, but honestly, I. I pretty much love his work as a director. I, I, I think if he had worked in the 70s doing the same exact sort of grindhouse stuff that he does now, just with a larger budget and more polish, uh, I, I think we would be we would be buying the Kino Lorber Blu-rays of his work. You know, we would be eagerly awaiting the Scream Factory releases of, you know, the 1970s Resident Evil or Death Race, you know, Um I just I dig what he does, and uh, Monster Hunter is kind of kind of no different. It's uh, you know the, the the plot is super thin, but the characters are super likable. It's incredibly well made. the The monsters are fantastic. The action's so much fun, and uh, the movie just zips along. It's it's you know I, I think I tweeted about it, but it's just it's unapologetically dumb fun. It's a popcorn movie that knows it's a popcorn movie. That's all it wants to be. It wants to. You know, it wants to give you a good time for 90 minutes, and it does. So uh, I tweeted that, and uh, (laughs) 
a, a writer that I interviewed once who's a very nice man, and I like him a great deal, but I, I, I think he has uh, an axe to grind with Anderson, and he... He proceeded to harangue me for liking the movie, both on Twitter and in my DMs, and he was even kind of sort of throwing shade at people who were responding to me, saying that they liked the movie. He was going after, like, they were like, oh, well, I actually enjoyed it. No, you didn't. You know, that sort of response. I was like, holy <laughs> shit. Like, I just, I, I direct message, and I was like, you know what? I kind of liked it. Shrug, and he's just like, it's terrible. Everybody on Facebook says it's terrible, too. That tells me that Facebook is better than Twitter. I'm like, holy shit, what the fuck? Like, what What did this guy do to you to make you so angry? I thought we were cool, man. You know, uh, which is maybe a weird thing to note about the movie. But still, you know, that's that's kind of what uh, it's kind of what I'm wrestling with right now anyway. But I will say, as far as the movie goes, it's, uh, it's on VOD. It just popped up. It's a little pricey. But if you like his work, if you dig what he does, I, I think it's definitely worth a watch. Uh, I'm a big fan of his work. I think he knows exactly the kind of movie he's making and he knows the audience he's making it for. And that's a gift, honestly. And uh, I love all the Resident Evil movies. I love Event Horizon. Uh, I think that uh, anytime he and Mia Jovovich uh, work together is always great. Also, uh, did I not see a tweet that Toho co-produced this? Toho. It shows up in the opening credits as one of the producers. I was like, you got to be kidding me. So I'm about to watch a Paul W.S. Anderson directed kaiju film produced by friggin' Toho. Yeah, that to me is like just a check mark of sales, honestly. I'm, I'm all on board. <laughs> Paul, have you seen it yet? I haven't. I'm actually really excited to see it. Yeah, I agree with what, what you all are saying. I, 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 don't, I don't subscribe to... Yeah, I don't know why the hate is there. I, I, I admit... I actually haven't seen the Resident Evil movies. I've seen the first one. <gasps> I know, I know, I know. I, I, but I'm going to watch. I do, to your point earlier, I do own them. <laughs> I, bought, <laughs> I bought a box set at some point with the intention of watching it. I just haven't said. So I'm excited to watch those. But yeah, I do want to see this one. I, I love uh, um, Event Horizon. I'm a huge fan of that. So uh, yeah, no, I'm I'm signed up. I think I'm going to wait till the Blu-ray comes out because that's like, early March. So I'll probably just pick that up and That's watch right. it that way, but I, I definitely will see it. Very cool. I hope you dig it. Yeah. I love Anderson. I really do. And I, I mean, I, I'm sure we're all eagerly awaiting the event horizon special edition disc from scream factory, right? Which sadly will not include any more footage, which was apparently destroyed. That breaks my heart that we're never going to be able to get that guy's director's cut of that movie because apparently it no longer exists. Mm-hmm. Such a bummer. It's sad. That makes me sad. All right. We are nearly an hour in. Let's go ahead and dive into (laughs) the movie proper. Now, folks, listening out there, what we're going to do is queue up our movies to the very first frame. Now, whether you are watching by way of the old Anchor Bay uh, DVD, whether you're watching the Screen Factory Blu-ray, whether you're watching it streaming, I'm just kidding. You cannot find the son of a bitch streaming anywhere. Trust me, I checked. Uh, but no matter how you're watching it, let's go ahead and advance to the very first frame. We'll do a countdown and we'll all press play together. You know, I probably should have turned on my player in advance of this. <laughs> probably should have done that. I'm ready. Really? Are you? Are you? I am. Uh, damn. Me, I got to look at an FBI anti-piracy warning right now. I got to look at a disclaimer for the commentaries and the interviews. Uh, it's going to be a minute. You know what? While I'm waiting, I'm just going to take a drink or three. Get prepped. I got to tell you, I'm, I'm about a drink and a half in. Okay. That's feeling good. I've got a beer, a beer in me. 
Okay, that doesn't really count. <laughs> Always throwing shade. I'm sorry. Right. If it makes you feel better, it's not really shade toward you so much as beer. I don't know if that I, makes sense. It does make me feel a little better. Okay, it's not you. It's not personal. <laughs> Paul, it's not personal. I can accept that. Okay, Mr. Verratti, are you ready? I am ready. Okay, very first frame. You know what? There isn't even much of a fade in listeners out there. We're going to start on Associated British Pathé Limited. Is it Pathé? 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 You know, it doesn't matter. Limited presents. As soon as we stop on that frame, we're going to press play in five seconds. Ready, everyone? We're going to begin here in five, four, three, two, one, and play. All right. We see some drums being beaten here. And you know what? As soon as this movie begins, I don't know if it's the same for you all, but to me, I get the feeling that this is going to be unlike any Hammer film I've seen up until this point. It's not quite, and I'll say that's kind of true of the entire movie. Um, This is a film that doesn't feel entirely of a piece with everything that Hammer had done up until this point. I'm not knocking it for that. I actually think it's a virtue of the film, but... It's a little different. It's not even so much hammer to me sometimes as it is more kind of amicus, if that makes any sense. Well, what's interesting is this is almost like a prototype of what hammer is going to be doing later uh, when with things like the devil rides out or to the devil, a daughter or even satanic rites of Dracula, where it leans more into the occultism. Not that these movies don't already, but it's usually some sort of pre-existing monster. And from the monster comes the power and the darkness. Whereas this, movie kind of speaks to that kind of man's dabbling in the in that which he should not you know yeah and it's it's a far cry i mean this opening is a far cry from what you know hammer's gothic aesthetics typically give you and while this movie has no shortage of like gothic manners and rustic taverns the, the these sort of this underground cave with you know men beating on drums, this bombastic score, it kind of lets you know that you're in for something really different. Um, And it also feels like a more modern approach to engaging the audience, right? Because Hammer didn't typically do the sort of like, here's some sort of like out of context piece of the narrative to kind of draw you in. There's usually more of a, a subtle kind of engagement at the beginning of the film. So I, I like a lot of how this is, engaging the viewer early on and and letting them know that they're in for something different. And am I crazy? I mean, how many times up until this point had we seen a pre-credits sequence in a Hammer film? They're rare in in this era. They're definitely rare. And it's kind of gorgeous too. You know, I was listening to a bit of the commentary and they made a very good point where, you know, we are dealing with voodoo, you know, we're, we're dealing with uh, Haitian voodoo to an extent. And yet you know, all of the men who are kind of uh, wielding uh, 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 the spells, as it were, you know, they're not dressed anything like voodooan priests. You know, they're 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 a bit more, uh, you know, Celtic in design, which is kind of a really interesting choice, that kind of melding. Well, I, I really like that. And I mean, I don't know how early we want to get into that discussion. But one of the things that I'm very fascinated by about this movie is sort of the subtle and not so subtle themes of imperialism that occur yeah. throughout it. Because yeah. this, mo- this movie is ultimately really about class, uh, you know, and in the way that class is wielded as a weapon. And if, if you look at, you know, these are clearly, you know, even from this teaser sequence before reveals later, we know these are white guys that are leading the ceremony. 
And right. so you can infer that they have taken these rituals and perverted them to their own means. And that, in a grander scale, using horror as an allegory, can speak to many, many things historically that Western imperialism has done in the co-opting of other cultures for nefarious purposes. And uh, I love that, you know, Hammer always has some sort of moral, uh, especially during this era, but this is one that's particularly interesting because the moral kind of is holding, you know, the British Empire over the fire on it. Yeah, it definitely seems to... Yeah, it, it seems to be saying something about appropriation, you know, what with having a, a, a white man who's gone into Haiti and he's taken kind of the uh, African diasporic religion, you know, uh, voodoo, and he's 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 brought it back to the UK for the express purpose of enslaving people, you know, and that's that's dealt with in the story, certainly. But I wonder, too, like if sort of zombies themselves weren't somewhat appropriated as well, you know, as, as a storytelling trope, you know, it, we have this facet of, you know, a religion that's kind of taken and turned into Hollywood story fodder. I'm talking about everything pre Romero, of course, you know, the, I guess the traditional zombie as it were, you know, I'm just wondering, is that like, as viewers, you know, looking back on all of that, is that icky at all? Is that objectionable? You know, I, I, I surely wouldn't want to do without zombies in storytelling. And yet it's just, I don't know. Well, I'm glad, you know, that once George Romero shows up, we move away from the appropriation uh, influence or the appropriation of the culture for the express use in horror as as the influence, rather. Um, But it is interesting because, you know, prior to this, you've got White Zombie with uh, Bela Lugosi and uh, movies that engaged with zombies before Night of the Living Dead lean into the voodoo because that's part of the culture, but it's usually always through a white man's lens. And I, I don't even know if we're the right people to be leading that discussion. <laughs> Probably not. But I do think that, you know, it, it it does merit a discussion because at the core of it, it is taking someone else's culture and weaponizing it. And in yeah. that way, it's interesting for the horror because horror doesn't excuse it. It's saying that it's wrong and it's saying that it's, it's, it's being used wrong, you know, in a wrong fashion. So I, I think that, I don't know. I, I think that there's a whole book you could write about that. Yeah. I, and originally, I, oh, sorry, Paul. No, you're, you're fine. I, I, I totally agree. And I think it, this is, well, and this is one of the last zombie films to come out before night of the living dead. I mean, night of the living dead was what, two years away at this point. Um, so we're right on the cusp of, of a huge shift in the genre at large, not just zombies, you know? Um, and yet I, I see a lot of things in this movie visually and stylistically when it comes to how the zombies are depicted and used that kind of, sort of hearken to Night of the Living Dead. Like, I, I wonder if Romero might have seen this film. Um, uh, well, we know for a fact that he did. Um, when I was working with Hammer, which we discussed last time uh, I came on, uh, one of the things that uh, I had done some research on was sort of the, far re- the far-reaching influence of some of these movies. And uh, it's very well documented, uh, at least by Hammer and Hammer historians, that Romero saw this movie and uh, was very inspired by it. And of course, he put his own spin on on this genre that took it far away from what we see. But the imagery is there. Like, you know, the first time oh, yeah. she, 
she encounters a zombie in this movie, it might as well be the the you know Johnny and Barbara in the cemetery at the beginning yep. of Night of the Living Dead. <laughs> yeah, and um, yeah, it was really interesting when I was working with Hammer. It was around the time that Romero passed away, and I I wrote a piece for their webpage about sort of the mutual respect amongst horror titans and how uh, you know the the people behind Hammer after Night came out loved that movie, but you know it, it, it's it's all cyclical because. Romero's influenced by Hammer, but then he makes this movie that so changes the conversation that really no horror film that came after couldn't not have been influenced by him, you know? Right. So Hammer then is influenced by someone who is influenced by him, and it all kind of goes full circle. And uh, it's just kind of cool to consider how the genre constantly informs itself. It's kind of neat, too. Like, you know, when we look at Night of the Living Dead, that is the movie that you know, there are zombies before Night of the Living Dead and zombies after, you know, and I don't think, can you think of many movies after Night of the Living Dead that featured zombies as being anything but shambling flesh eaters, you know, uh, maybe the serpent, and the rainbow, serpent you know, the rainbow, uh, yeah. but beyond that, I mean, you know, here we have a movie that's kind of, it's kind of a bridge, you know, the, we have here, not quite the shambling flesh eaters of Romero, you know, but neither still is this a film about traditional voodoo and zombies either, you know, no matter what the plot is. You know, these are these are not drugged, brainwashed people. These are not the the walking dead of Jacques Teneur, you know, but how they're presented here, you know, they're not far off from Romero, like you noted. Uh, and and they're meant to come from some sort of fictionalized form of voodoo. But, you know, again, I, I, I wonder if we couldn't consider the plague of the zombies to be a sort of bridge between traditional zombies and then, you know, Romero's zombies, the zombies that we know, you know, uh, when we think of zombies today as being. No, absolutely. Um, one thing I want to say before we get too far away from the beginning of this film that I always enjoyed about this movie, and it's more prevalent in the first act, and then as the severity of the situation settles in, we kind of lose it as the characters, you know, start dealing with the gravity of it all. But I, I really love how singular this is in that the Hammer catalog with the kind of use of humor. Like when we are first introduced to uh, our, our lead and his daughter, they have that a very quippy back and forth. And they have it up until really they, you know, get to the town and see the body uh, knocked off of the, the, the carriage. Um, and it's this very like Jeeves and Worcester sort of, you know, insult insults and playful manners uh that you know they both are enjoying it it's like the the uh the barbs that they sling back and forth and hammer characters so rarely have that kind of sense of whimsy it's usually a very like stuffy matter of factness uh and the fact that andre morel's character literally kind of starts the movie just razzing his daughter for the sake of it and she loves it um it sets it apart yeah, which is which is interesting too because it's so like it was really well documented that Andrew Morell like did not like Diane Clare and had all these problems on set with her, and then that that there's a lot of people that think too that he was like a driving force as to why they dubbed all of her dialogue because her this was another situation where all of her lines were dubbed over by all of Greg, so it's not actually her that you're hearing. And yet it works, their relationship works so well. Yeah, I mean, I think they have an undeniable chemistry in this. And I don't know if it's that mix of dub and, and personage, but 
I I delight in their relationship. Every time I revisit this film, I just I rarely, you know, want too much expository time before you get into the meat of a story. And yet I would love to have spent more time with them just at play before the the darkness settles in. Yeah, I agree. I see that. And they are both great. You know, whether or not she was dubbed or yeah, is there any sort of question about that? Or was she most certainly dubbed by another another actor? Uh she was dubbed. Okay. <laughs> That's a shame. Yeah. God, that must be so embarrassing for an actor too, to for that to have happened. Like, I just, I makes me feel bad for. Her. And yet, you know, what we get on screen is kind of amazing. And I do love Henri Morel here too. Uh, it's funny. I was looking it up. I have yet to see it, but I saw that he was, uh, he was not the first Quatermass, but he was one of the first. He played uh, Bernard Quatermass in the original BBC version of uh, Quatermass in the Pit. Uh, so apparently, like Quatermass, or rather the 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 Quatermass experiment, I think, and then Quatermass 2 and Quatermass in the Pit, they all had sort of television versions first uh, by way of the BBC before eventually they were remade as uh, big theatrical films. But yeah, he was he was one of the first. Mm. Which is curious yeah. then that this movie predates Quatermass in the Pit and obviously they had a relationship with him, you know, at least with this movie. It's curious that he didn't come back to play that character in the, uh, the big theatrical film, you know, instead oh. we get Andrew Keir. Oh, I mean, and it wasn't just this. He, he worked with Hammer a number of times because he's also in The Mummy Shroud. And he goes back, I believe, to The Shadow of the Cat in 1961. Uh, oh, nice. And uh, he popped up a lot with them. And I, I think, though, that he is of that era of working actor, right? Where yeah. uh, he was constantly in things. If you look at his resume... He'll like every year there were five or six movies that he was in, and it was probably just like a, a matter uh, of timing and with a lot of these guys. Um, but I do think it is interesting to uh, to look at someone like him or Ralph Bates or some of the not Lees and the and the not Cushings uh, because their Hammer had a whole stable of people, but we tend to when we think of this this studio only think of one or two people. It's like Christopher Lee, Ingrid Pitt, Peter Cushing. But yeah. there were a whole bunch of these guys who really, really helped shape these movies. And uh, I'm I'm so glad that he did a handful of these because his presence is considerable. Yeah, absolutely. You know, it's funny that you mentioned him too. I mean, when we mentioned Lee and Cushing and Ingrid Pitt, I honestly, you know, I, I, I rewatched Dracula Prince of Darkness, and after I uh, did that, I watched the next few Dracula films past that. You know, uh, uh, Dracula's Risen from the Grave, Taste the Blood of Dracula, Scars of Dracula. Damn it, why isn't Ralph Bates included in that list? Those first people that we think of when we think Hammer, because between his performance in uh, Dracula, between his performance, or considering his performance, rather, in uh Horror Frankenstein and uh, Dr. Jekyll and Sister Hyde. He, to me, is like one of the great performers in Hammer, and yet it seems like he's so rarely, you know, kind of given accolades for what he did. Oh, it's probably that thing of he was sort of the new kid on the block for a while, and, uh, you know, you know how fandom can be. Yeah, we we like what's already established, in, but that's only because we haven't found the new thing to dislike, you know? Uh, <laughs> and I think that he entered at a, a bizarre time and uh, to, to kind of assume the Frankenstein franchise after Cushing had sort of so 
firmly established it was going to be tricky. And, uh, you know, Dr. Jekyll, Sister Hyde certainly pushes some ideas that I'm sure were, were uh, challenging to more stuffy audience members. So he he was in some daring films. And I think time has been kind to his work at Hammer. But I think probably, as with a lot of cult cinema, it, it had to get there. It's a shame. You know, it's funny, I was looking it up. I think it was in the behind-the-scenes documentary on the Scream disc that this movie was initially known and even had a poster worked up for it early on. It was known as the horror of the zombie, uh, which I think is kind of fun when we consider that, you know, the, the introductory Dracula movie is horror of Dracula. Um you know, I, I, I wonder if there was ever the intention that there would be more zombie movies after this, because it's so damned well made. You know, they, they seem to have been wanting to tackle classic monsters during this period, you know, and they, they did their best to sort of establish each one of them before, you know, they decided to do follow ups or not. And, uh, you know, it's just it's a it's a damn shame that Hammer didn't do any more zombie films. You know, I understand why they didn't do any more werewolf films after Curse, but this film is really good. I wonder, though, if the release of Night of the Living Dead spoke to that. I mean, this movie kind of, uh, as as we have been talking about, leads right up to the door of Night of the Living Dead. And then afterwards, it was probably like, well, we can't go back, but we can't really do what that guy's doing. So what do we do? Yeah. You know? <laughs> I, I agree. And, it, and it's weird, too, because I think that, like, you watch this, you watch Night of the Living Dead, and it's this, as we said earlier, does a lot of things that not, and I love night night's one of my favorite films of all time. And the movie that kind of got me into horror when I first got into horror, but, but it seems unfair that this movie isn't as well known in some ways. Um, but it, it, it did have an interesting life. And, and I also kind of wonder, cause you know, originally it was, it was pitched to universal, like in 62 Heinz p- pitched it to universal as the zombie to add it to their, sort of universal monster collection. He wanted to bring the zombie into that group. And, and the idea was to make a franchise was to make a bunch of zombie movies. And they just thought it was too gruesome. They thought the zombie was too gruesome of a monster and it didn't fit with what universal was doing. And this was just repurposed like three times over the next three or four years until it became plague. Um, And I got to believe that, that the initial pitch to hammer was this can be the first of several, but it was also the B picture, you know, like the two a pictures in this, cause there were four movies made at the same time. It was Prince of darkness. It was Rasputin, this, and then uh, reptile. And this and reptile were the B pictures. They were the secondary lower budget. You know, these are going to go out as doubles with those other two bigger movies with Christopher Lee in them. Um, and, and as a result, Plague actually did well because Dracula did well. So a lot of people did see Plague. So I do I do wonder, I imagine that there was probably plans to make more. But I think to your point, Night of the Living Dead comes out and I just, yeah, you, Hammer can't really do zombies anymore. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's it, funny that you, oh, I'm sorry, go ahead. Oh, go ahead. No, it's just actually, uh, Mr. Roddy, I was going to ask you, you know, you noted that when Night of the Living Dead, they most likely so- said that, you know, they took a look at it and said, well, we can't do that. Has there been any writing? Has there been any studies? I'm sure there have, but I haven't read them yet. Has there been a look taken at why Hammer might have been resistant 
to doing more modern horror films uh, throughout the 70s when things started to change. Post Night of the Living Dead, post Texas Chainsaw. You know, and I'm, I'm glad that Hammer did what they did, and I, I love what they did. But, you know, even their attempts at being modern, you look at something like 80, 1972, yeah, sure, it's set in what would have been the present day, and yet, you know, it's still obviously a very classical kind of gothic horror picture. It just happens to be set in the present day. Had they ever considered doing anything uh, a bit more envelope pushing you know what what would hammer's texas chainsaw have been would they even have considered doing something like that do you think um well you know what's interesting about that is hammer first and foremost was a production house in a film studio and we have sort of done some revisionist history in that we we think of them as Hammer's House of Horror and that's it. But but the reality is is they were making movies all throughout of of different genres and different bends. They, those movies just didn't hit the way these did. This was the zeitgeist defining kind of genre for them. And but to your point, a lot of those movies, like the adventure movies, the Vengeance of She, you know, one million BC, those still are always like set not in the present day, and we then get to the 70s and they tried they did a lot of thrillers that were kind of marketed as female hysteria movies which you know in of itself is a problematic phrase (laughs) but fulfilled sort of like a niche of that moment and you get movies like straight on till morning or uh um fear in the night or uh demons of the mind's eye and uh crescendo with stephanie powers die die my darling And those were sort of their attempts of doing more modern horror. And I I can see it. Like, Straight Until Morning is a very psychosexual movie in that very polite hammer way that I think that had it pushed the envelope a little more, maybe people would remember it in a a different context. That that movie certainly has its fans. Uh, I love Crescendo. I think the ending sequence with Stephanie Powers uh, really deals with... uh, something that we don't see in horror very often in a very brilliant way. Um, but it, it it's interesting because Hammer was known for a certain aesthetic and a certain sensibility. And by the time Chainsaw comes out, uh, that sort of respectability horror kind of gets thrown out the window, right? You know, for lack of a better term. And Hammer exceeds at, at, at buttoned up stories about, you know, gothic heroines and, and uh, this sort of like very British sensibility. And then you cut to Texas with the, the baked in sun and the, like, you know, the dust on everything and cannibals going wild and nothing held back. That just wasn't their, their zhuzh. And I, I, they tried. I mean, I, I think to the devil, a daughter pushes some buttons uh, and maybe in ways it, it, it even shouldn't have, but, yeah. uh, <laughs> uh, but, I don't know. I mean, like, who's to say? I think that every era has its day. And I I think that, you know, maybe they could have tried to do something like that. But I don't know that it would have been genuine to what we want out of a Hammer film. Like, can you imagine? Like, people would probably, like, have rallied against it for just, you know, no, this isn't what, what you get when you, this isn't what you want when you see a Hammer movie. Or maybe they would have. Who, who's to say? You know, I do wonder, like, what, uh, you know, we've talked about this before. Um, 
you know, what Hammer might have looked like beyond its own demise. And, you know, I kind of wonder what a Hammer slasher film would have looked like. And I don't mean like, you know, I you could look at something like Hands of the Ripper, maybe. But even that, I mean like a traditional slasher film. You know, I mean uh, the structure, the tropes. But applied to, say, a, a gothic period piece. You know, I would love to see something like that. But, uh, you know, I, I, I just wonder what those might have looked like under, uh, you know, under Hammer's banner you know, under their, uh, creative control. And, uh, I don't know. We'll, we'll probably never know. I don't know if we're going to get any more new hammer movies or not. You know, I know that they picked up the lodge. What was it last year? But beyond that, you know, it had been a while before they put anything out. I, I think the, uh, maybe the woman in black sequel. And I don't know that anything's been announced beyond the lodge. So I don't know. I, I want hammer to be putting out a movie every year. I want that line to exist again. I want them to be trying new and daring things, but I, 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 I wonder if that's going to happen at this point. Yeah, I mean, only time will tell. The truth is, it is a very beloved brand. Uh, and it's why we're able to come together and have conversations about like this one, about movies like this one. Um, because, you know, 40, 50 years on, people are still interested. Uh, you know, to a whole generation, Christopher Lee is Dracula. And because of them, to a whole new Jennifer, generation, Christopher Lee is Dracula. Um, yeah. And not every studio who has dipped into the world of genre and, and done something like this has that staying power. So I, I have to believe that Hammer will always have a place. And, you know, it, it, much like its titular characters will rise again, we're, it, we just don't know necessarily what that means. You know, it's funny. We were talking about Texas Chainsaw. And yeah, I mean, Hammer's sensibilities... I can't see them doing a dust-covered, like, Texan setting, you know, with chainsaws and, you know, grit and gore, you know, even for what little gore was actually in Texas Chainsaw. And yet, you know, I'm looking at what's on screen right now. This is probably, and correct me if you think I'm wrong, this is probably the hardest thing that they've done up until this point. There's no blood, there's no gore, there's no death. We never actually see anything happen. Nothing actually does happen, but the implications are maybe the hardest things thing rather that's 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 happened in hammer up until this point that i know of and and you're speaking of course uh to the hunting team has captured our lead and they're kind of roughing her up in a very uh intense way and yeah the the panic and the um desperation of this scene uh, the implication of course is is horrifying and you're right hammer really never went this far before um, and to me, watching this movie, this is this is one of the most intense and scary scenes in the film because it's a very real danger. Uh, yeah, I, I and I think it's it's you know to say that it's brilliantly played out feels not right, but also true. You know, and yeah. it is curious that we are introduced to Hamilton here, you know, in this scene anyway, in such a way that. We 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 kind of want to like him for just a second, if for no other reason by virtue of the fact that he puts an end to what was going to be, you know, something quite horrible that was about to happen. But that also is part of the long tradition of gentleman villains that we get from Hammer. They they love the faux um, politeness and the 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 rigid background of aristocracy. You know. Um, Count Dracula is often quite polite in a lot of the Christopher Lee movies until he's not. 
uh, in, in, in the films where, um, you know, Cushing is playing Frankenstein as a villain. He's quite polite until he's not. And I think it only furthers the discussion that we had earlier about the commentary on uh, the wickedness of class and how sometimes truly evil things come in really great packages and really alluring niceties. But what's under the surface is not so nice. Right. He's handsome. He's charming. He's a good host. He put an end to what was going to be, you know, a young woman being brutalized. And yet, you're right. If you scratch the surface underneath, there's a guy who's willing to uh, to enslave people and, you know, commit atrocities. They, yeah, they can they can bring about pleasure and comfort just as easily as as pain, you know. And and Squire Hamilton in many, I mean, this movie's structured a lot like Dracula. Um, you know, Squire Hamilton is very much a Dracula character. There's sort of a Van Helsing character. Um, you know, he himself has to sort of kill his victims so they be they can become his sort of slaves and servants. Like, there, there's definitely some Dracula parallels to this movie. Yes, absolutely. And it it makes it all the more insidious because we know as audience members and especially as fans of genre that there's always something kind of fun about liking the villain as far as they exist on screen, right? You know, in a, in a real world context, we would uh, we would think of these people differently. But when you take into account horror fandom and just sort of the celebration of our favorite villains, of our favorite monsters, it's because we can safely engage with the darkness and then know that it gets taken care of by the time the credits roll. Um, and... How often do you think... Oh, I'm sorry, go ahead. Oh, go ahead. No, I was just wondering, that's a very good point that you made, but I wonder when it comes to certain sets of fandom, I wonder how much of that is them wanting to merely engage with that and how much of it is them wanting to perhaps be that. You know, I you watch something like, uh, you know, the scene that we just watched play out. You know, the, the guy came in, he saved the young lady, he sent her on her way, right? We like him. We know he's the bad guy. We know from minute one, and yet... We're invited to like him because, yeah, he's a bad guy, but he 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 still has that one redeeming aspect. We can see stuff like that as, you know, I'm thinking of something like, if for another reason, because new episodes are airing, but something like The Walking Dead. You know, you have the Jeffrey Dean Morgan character, Negan. Back when he was introduced, he beat two beloved characters to death with a baseball bat. And yet later on, he saved a young woman from being raped and, in fact, disemboweled her would-be attacker because he thought that the entire notion of her being raped was utterly distasteful, right? And it seemed like from that point on, not only did audience members kind of cotton to him a bit after that, but, you know, the the show itself did. There was a pivot. He becomes a little more of an anti-hero and somebody we're invited to like. And I, I, I wonder why sometimes we as viewers, not just in this genre, but every genre, why we're invited to like the villains, even when they've committed atrocities. I mean, it goes back to our childhoods. Like, if you watch any Disney movie, all of the villains are far more interesting than any of the lead characters. Like, who wouldn't rather be hanging out with Ursula than... <laughs> like, like no, no offense, but, like, Ariel's boring in comparison. It's oh. just like... And it's it's sort of, I think, that... In the safety of fiction, there's something kind of delicious about someone reveling 
in the, the truth of their wickedness because the world isn't like that. So I think that there's a safety in fiction. And I think we all engage in it in different ways. Like for some of us, it's just fun because it's good television. It's good movie. And at the end of the day, you know, it's wrong, but it's, it's fine because it's safe on screen. And yeah, I'm sure there are people uh, out there that are like, I would like to be Hannibal because I want to learn how to cook like that. No, please. Uh, <laughs> but you know, I mean, and it happens all the time. No one is above it. And, you know, and the most recent example, if you were on Twitter this week, and I'll just say this now, if you are not cut up on WandaVision, spoiler alert, pause for a second. But <laughs> everybody's going nuts about Catherine Hahn. And the reason is we love bad guys who love being bad guys. That's just mm-hmm. how it goes, you know? you know? I do wonder, though, like when it gets to the point when the villains are celebrated you know beyond the point that we're simply having fun with them and look i'm not somebody who believes that there's a direct correlation between uh you know artistic expression and real acts of violence you know i i remember being in high school when columbine happened and everybody wanted to blame everything from the matrix to marilyn manson and you know even as a kid i was crying horse shit the entire time but i do wonder like and i like the movie but something like joker which turns a villain into essentially a hero or I, th- I tell you what the the main thing that kind of sort of raised the question within me and and had me a little worried and i've talked about this before on this podcast paul has heard this so many times before paul you can tune out for two minutes if you'd like but i'm always in <laughs> <laughs> when i went to the movie theater to catch rob zombies three from hell you know, I, I like House of a Thousand Corpses. I like The Devil's Rejects. You can watch those movies and see villains that are super charismatic and absolutely, like, super watchable. And yet still understand that they're rapists and murderers and bad people. Sure. You know, and still enjoy what you're seeing on screen and still appreciate the, a, a story being told well. Or not, depending. I know Zombie has his detractors as much as he has his fans, but... When I went to the movie theater, there was a three-night premiere for the film. It didn't get the wide release that Rejects did, but it played on screens like 2,000 theaters, but only for three nights. I went one of those nights, and there was a healthy, like a decent-sized audience in there. And what I found was was that during this movie, any time those – and they are villains. Anytime those villains committed some sort of atrocity, did something horrible to innocent people – the audience members around me were cheering and laughing and hooting and hollering and having a fucking blast watching these characters victimize like just random people. You know, there there's a moment where the implication, funnily enough, like Three from Hell doesn't go as far as the Devil's Rejects when it comes to a, a sexual assault. But there's one that's, you know, it's implied heavily that one has happened and there's kind of a gag made about it. Now, when you watch the movie on your own, like in the safety of your own home, away from crazy people in a movie theater, you can, <laughs> you know, you can realize like, oh, that's dark and horrible. And these people are laughing at it, but you're not meant to. Right. But in that audience that night, people were laughing at that even. And so I do wonder, even even though I would never subscribe to censorship or tell anybody that they shouldn't, you know, make whatever the hell they want to make. And even though I don't believe that movies directly lead to violent acts, I do wonder there are moments where i am concerned that that may in fact be be the case and am i crazy for thinking that do you think no i think that context of course is everything how you see something is everything but you know even that we've spent so much time on this conversation tells you and tells everyone how nuanced 
and deep this well goes. You know, here we are in the middle of this movie that we, you know, it, this conversation was spurned from this movie. And yet we could do three whole hours on this topic and still never arrive at an answer because we have all seen the movie where we love the bad guy. And we have all seen the movie where like the person's actions are just a hair different from this movie over here. And it's uncomfortable and reprehensible. And you know, deep down, it just feels wrong. And what is that litmus? What is that hair? What is the change? Uh, and, and it's all, I guess, like in presentation and how it's engaged and where you're at. Like, I don't know. I mean, when I was a kid, my favorite characters when like, you know, Masters of the Universe, I loved Skeletor. I thought he was fucking cool. Um, <laughs> but it's like there's a there's a world of difference between maybe thinking that Skeletor is really awesome and then watching like the Ted Bundy movie. And I don't think he's awesome. I think he's scary. So it's like, I think context matters. But how do you define that context? I think it comes down to the viewer. And maybe more discussion should be made. Maybe more consideration should be made. I, who's to say? Like, this this, this is a, a dissertation waiting to happen. <laughs> Yeah, we've touched on so many topics this this conversation that could be books. I love it. Like so many <laughs> books are going to be spawned from this podcast. Uh, yeah, I mean, I, I my thoughts on it. Um, I've thought about this a lot. And Jinx, yeah, you and I have talked about this many times. I mean, there's always the you know art imitates life, and then life imitates art. Right? It's this weird cycle, and it's a difficult notion to sort of pin down. It's a back and forth that, that can change direction depending on the person you're talking to. Um, but the reality is, I think once once created, art will take on a life of its own, and its meaning will be determined by the individual encountering it, and and then its inspiration will be in their hands. Um, and the responsibility that the artist has to their, I don't know, their their audience, I, I that that's a question that I don't know can be truly answered. I mean, you know, if 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 you make something that drives somebody to do something awful, I don't think that 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 is or can be the artist's fault. You know, does that mean the art shouldn't exist? You know what I mean? Like, so if one person goes and does something atrocious because they identify with the killer in a movie, does that suddenly negate the art in some way? Um, where where does guilt factor in? Where, you know, these are all questions worth exploring. Ha, have any of you seen? It's a newer movie, Random Acts of Violence by Jay Burchell. Uh, no, but oddly enough, I like really just saw it advertised yesterday. I know it's been around for a while, but I just saw an advertisement for it yesterday. So I was yeah, I was kind oh. of put off. It it premiered on Shutter. Am I right about that, Paul? About a half a year ago. Yeah, I was kind of put off by viewing it by the uh, the leaked messages or the leaked pitch they had for his movie that kind of shat upon you know every horror movie that had come before. Uh, it was a very sort of uh, you know mine is an elevated horror film. Yeah, you know, that sort of well, thing. Well, and look, I didn't bring it up because I think it's I'm 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 an equal opportunity guy when it comes to movies. Um, <laughs> I I don't think the film is is great but it that this conversation is what it's about um and it's probably 
one of the only movies I've seen in recent memory that like takes this question head on and just sort of deals with it. I don't think it comes to a good conclusion. It's not one I agree with, but I found it really interesting because it's basically about uh, a comic book artist who creates a serial killer slasher comic book based on some real life murders that happened. Um, and the comic book's like incredibly graphic and gory and, uh, the comic book's coming to an end. He's going on a tour, like a signing tour because the comic book is ending. And as he does, so, um, a murderer, a real life serial killer begins to reenact the murders, like the horrific, gruesome murders from the pages of his comic book. And a lot of the movie is sort of the outside world attacking the artist and basically saying like, this is your fault. You're cashing in on something terrible. You've, you've made an icon that people sort of identify with. And now this is really happening and you have a responsibility for this. And the artist is vehemently saying, well, no, I don't. It's art. You know, that's crazy. And, and, and again, it's, it's not handled incredibly well, but it, it it's an interesting question and I think like more movies would do well to sort of attempt to deal with it, um, especially horror, because it is something that's lobbed. I, it's a sore spot for a lot of horror fans because a lot of horror fans get accused of being despicable for liking despicable things. Right. Um, and, and so I think we're all sort of sensitive to that. Well, it is tricky, right? You know, speaking as an artist, you know, I, I love the idea of pushing the envelope. And like when I grew up and the filmmakers I gravitated to, the John Waters, the Cronenbergs of it all, the David yeah. Lynch's, they didn't really ask for permission and they didn't worry about working within a system of of approval. And but you know, as we know, like in the greater conversation, that the kind of the discourse we see online, the discourse we see among critics and among fellow artists. There is an onus of responsibility about what you create and what you put into the world. And I do think that you need to take that seriously. Like, you know, you don't want to include certain messages that like, you know, speak or promote, you know, certain kinds of behaviors or thought processes. But on the same token, when you're telling a story, if you want to kind of push against those things and have conversations about those things, you kind of... is bound for a terrifying destination. Dead. But no corpse can remain at peace in this village of the undead, this land of the zombies. In this place, no one is safe. No one can hide from witchcraft, superstition, and fear. Even Sir James Forbes, the clear-headed man of science, was forced to accept the horrifying facts. Young Martinus also says that he saw something on the moors, something that he insists was his brother. But we know that his brother is dead. We also know that he is not lying in his coffin. Someone in this village is practicing witchcraft. That corpse wandering on the moors is an undead zombie. <laughs> 
a place dominated by men without morals, whose bloodlusts are excited by hunting a human quarry. When Sylvia Forbes hated the young squire, it was dangerous. But when she fell in love with him, it was lethal. Wait a second. I'm on mute. My bad. Uh, Mr. Verratti, are you back? He is unavailable. Okay, folks out there listening, Mr. Verratti told us that this might happen at the very beginning. He was having internet issues, so we may not be getting him back. Uh, we'll see how it goes. That would make me sad that we wouldn't be able to finish the commentary without him. But uh... hey, hey, should Did you pause or should I rewind? I, mine's still going. My movie just kept going. Um, I'd say we keep going, I guess, okay. because I don't know. Wait, did you say you did pause or didn't pause? I did not pause. Okay, so, so yeah, we're still, let's just keep barreling through, and hopefully we can get them back at some point. Folks out there in listener land, this happens occasionally. Hopefully you'll bear with us. Uh <laughs> we we were we were thoroughly we were getting thoroughly off uh the beaten path of a commentary about halfway through the movie as we are prone to do so that was that was good i think it was it was fun uh unfortunately yeah i was very curious to see where he was going with that thought and uh okay he's messaging me now he messaged uh ah so uh I'm back, I think. Yay! <laughs> okay, so here's the thing. We are doing this all in real time with commentary. We have not paused. So, uh, Mr. Verratti, you were in mid-thought. Do you want to pick up where you left off? Um, well, did I miss any good commentary while I was gone? I figured, like, so the internet in all of Studio City just apparently went out um, at once. So at least I know I wasn't the only one suffering there. Um, <laughs> the only thing you missed was... Hello? I'm yeah. here. Yeah. Hello? Yeah. Paul, are you, you there? Yes. Sorati, are you there? That's pretty much, it was that for two minutes. Oh. So. <laughs> okay, well, I mean, I was just like, when I thought the internet was out, I, I was just like, okay, well, I'm going to see if I can connect to a hotspot, uh, and I'm going to go get another beer. Uh, basically, what I was saying, I feel like I was really like on a tirade there for a second, but like in, in a good way, I, I was really just speaking to the fact that, you know, the artist bears responsibility for what they create. But the audience also bears responsibility for how they receive that message. You know, a movie can make you question your morality and, you know, lead to discussion of what is moral, what is ethical, what is virtuous, what is not. But only you as a human being are responsible for your own actions and your own morality. So, I mean, we still need to be thoughtful and we still need to be mindful about the things we make and the things we put into the world. But for an audience to say that, you know, this happened because a movie made them do it is eschewing their own personal responsibility. If the artist right. has to take responsibility, so do those who receive that art. 
Yeah. That I, makes sense. I, agree. I can argue with that. Yeah. That's uh and and that's very much ties into Plague of the Zombies. <laughs> <laughs> so many people went out and tried to control the working class after this film. <laughs> <laughs> well and it was all Plague's fault. <laughs> Maybe we just blew it wide open. What if this movie right. was I think, started? Right. I mean, that's... Did the Plague of the Zombies, did, did this movie give us Republicans? Is that what happened? <laughs> well, it would be what? The the Tories or the... Is it Tories? <laughs> Possibly. I. You know, when did this come out in America? You know, was this... Uh, this would have been pre-Nixon, right? Um... No, if this is this was released in '66, this is ah okay. This is Nixon. I just wanted to blame Watergate on this film. Just trying to make that connection. I don't know if it's there to be made. It was originally pitched in 1962, so it could still be like Watergate still could come from that pitch if he had somehow heard it. (laughs) Well, you want to talk about someone who like really did try and put an onus of morality on art. Uh, Nixon was very interested in uh, how art affected the youth because that was during the counterculture. Um, yeah. you know, he he did not like the Beatles. He wanted to utilize Elvis as a spy. Um, <laughs> I, I, I went to Kent State University. That's my alma mater. And, uh, oh, nice. you know, Kent has a very long counterculture history as well as, you know, a very famous unfortunate incident during the Vietnam era. Uh, and and Nixon is woven all throughout that history. And, and the idea of, of Governor Rhodes, who was the governor of Ohio at the time, the concern of, of sort of how music and, and art was affecting this anti, uh, anti-conservative sentiment. And I was like, well, it, you know, it, it, it is not the causation. It is a, it is a reflection. That is curious. I'm from Southern Ohio, and uh, yeah, that state, man, that state. <laughs> I just, you know, I'm I'm just glad I escaped to a much better state, like Florida. <laughs> yeah, um, yeah. Where, where well, in Southern Ohio? I'm sure we've talked about this before, but a little place called Franklin Furnace. It's a stone's throw away from Ashland, Kentucky, and Huntington, West Virginia. It's part of the tri-state area there, and. Uh, it's about two hours directly south of Columbus. Okay, gotcha. So near, if you look at Ohio and you see the very southern tip of the state, that literally that's called South Point, the southernmost tip of the state. I was about 20 minutes from there. So, so yeah, yeah. Ohio's, uh, Ohio sure is something sometimes. Oh, I see we're at the point in the movie where he has uh, got some blood. <laughs> it was time you know it's funny we were talking about texas chainsaw a moment ago and you know i wonder if there wasn't more blood in a typical hammer film than there was in the entirety of texas chainsaw certainly yeah, in this one there question. was well yeah that that is true because texas chainsaw i mean in a lot of ways is is a lot less bloody than its reputation you know, yeah. and, and and certainly like Dracula, Prince of Darkness has a whole lot of blood in it. Oh my God! Yeah, <laughs> what, the entire what we... Dracula fr- franchise, man. When you get to the point when you have bats regurgitating blood to resurrect you, holy shit! You know, one thing about this movie that that I like is uh, 
we think about John Gilling's direction in this film, like I, I really like the way this film was shot um, yes. and the way he frames things. It does feel, I mean, I know he made several hammer films, but it, it's, it's very unique against sort of like what you would get out of like a Terrence Fisher film, for example. He, he isn't Terrence Fisher. He isn't Freddie Francis. He isn't. Right. Uh, Oh God, I'm forgetting his name. The guy who's kind of like the perfect midpoint between Francis and Terrence Fisher. He directed Roy Ward Baker. Roy Roy Ward Baker. Baker, Thank you. Roy Ward Baker is the glue that connects Terrence Fisher to Freddie Francis for me. But John Gilling falls entirely outside of that, that sort of Trinity to me. But I, but I love what he does. We needed those guys, you know, we needed the people who mixed it up. Yeah, I, I love the way like lighting is used, the way things are sort of positioned in the frame to obscure things or to create like depth of field. I don't know. This movie is just a really beautiful film to look at, other than the really egregious day for night shooting, <laughs> which <laughs> might have had more to do with the processing than the actual filmmaking. Because a lot of Hammer films use day for night, but it feels particularly rough well, in this Paul, one. I, I tell you what else he does, and you're absolutely right. I agree with you entirely, but. Paul, when you and I first started this podcast, all the way, way back in the day, uh, with uh, with getting hammered with Hammer, I can't really remember those days that much because we... Well, we were hammered. We were hammered. <laughs> but, uh, but I remember enough to remember that when we were talking, like Curse of Frankenstein and Horror of Dracula, we were talking about, you know, our love of Hammer, and I remember us both noting that Hammer was never particularly scary, you know? And uh, I gotta tell you, I, I I forgot about this movie. I was wrong anyway because this film, you know, for the bulk of it, no, it's not. It's it's nice and atmospheric and creepy, and it does all the things that Hammer traditionally does, right? It 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 yeah. it, it, it does it it checks all the boxes on the list for what I want from a Hammer film, certainly. But this film contains a truly scary five minute sequence that I would stack up against most other horror films. You know, forget Hammer. Uh, it's easily the scariest thing that Hammer ever did. But I would stack those five minutes up against any horror movie that I've seen. And that five minutes is coming up. It's Alice's Resurrection, The Beheading, and The Nightmare Sequence. That entire stretch of film, I think, is fucking superb. And I think that's all down to Gilling's direction. You know, not only does he know how to shoot a beautiful movie and how to get great performances, but the man knew how to craft the scare. Uh, and he was really good at, at like subtle moments too. Like here we are at the funeral when her wound starts bleeding because of the ritual from afar. I think that's brilliant. Um, oh, this moment that's happening right now is one of my favorite moments in the film. Cause it's such a hammer moment where, uh, Andre Morell is asking the priest like, Oh, do you have a library? And the priest is like, of course. And he says <laughs> like, I would just like to borrow if you have some books on witchcraft and black magic. And the priest is like, I got you covered, bro. And I'm like, (laughs) as if that's like a totally normal conversation to have. And like every church just happens to have the yield black magic section. Uh, Right. (laughs) I I, I love it. I know it's It's like in a... Oh, sorry. It, it, I always have to bring this up on a Hammer podcast. It's like in Dracula Dead and Loving It, where he's like, do you have Nosferatu? He's like, I got Nosferatu today. It's <laughs> <laughs> uh, so good. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and uh, the uh, you mentioned the, the scene where Alice 
you know, the dream sequence and the beheading. Jacqueline Pierce in this movie is great. Um, I think she's just, this is a, a standout performance. I think almost everyone in it, the only actor in this film that I feel like doesn't really hold up, and this comes across in the commentaries quite a bit, but is uh, uh, Brooke Williams as uh, Peter Thompson or Dr. Thompson or whatever. Do you think that's him or do you think that's the writing? Because there's I, a whole I don't know. I mean, there's some pretty emotional scenes where he just kind of feels like a little hollow in his like emotional sort of what he's coming across. I mean, not to not to rag on him too much. I mean, he I, part of it could be that he's acting against, you know, Andre Morrell and I think Diane Claire, even though she's dubbed, provides like a very good physicality in the film. Um, but he just, I don't know, he just doesn't, a lot of his scenes don't land for me, or at least the emotion doesn't. Oh, but boy, can he wear a cravat. True. <laughs> Can't deny that. <laughs> you know, look, at this, look at how compelling Morel is here. Like, he's, he's, the man's wonderful. This is sort of an era of horror that we don't have anymore, you know, because I think there is a shift when the 70s come, especially into the 80s, where it becomes teenager focused and, um, you know, final girl focused, which, of course, I love that era. And I love final girls. And uh, that is, is such an important aspect of the horror genre. But you see in the in the fifties, sixties, and seventies, sort of like the occult expertise, like the the gentleman protagonist, and where of course Van Helsing really embodies that. But you had mentioned Fear No Evil and Ritual of Evil with someone like Louis Jordan, or uh, you know what Andre Morel's doing here. Uh, it, it's just sort of like l- learning, and a scholarly pursuit is the ultimate weapon against evil. We don't see this as much anymore. And I kind of miss this. I I don't want them all the time, but I think there's sort of like a nice array of actors that I would love to see in sort of one of these supernatural movies with their, you know, three-piece suit and say, well, I studied at Oxford and here's how we do this, you know? Instead, we get fisticuffs. We get a... We get Tom Cruise and a machine gun leaping off of rooftops and stuff in, in The Mummy. You know, it, it sucks. But I wonder, you know, too, like the reason we don't get movies like this so much anymore. And God, I wish we did. You know, imagine like Anthony Hopkins playing. Uh, uh, imagine Anthony Hopkins as Quatermass, you know, something like that. Or God, imagine Mads Mikkelsen being in, uh, you know, playing the equivalent to Christopher Lee in a movie like uh, The Gorgon, you know. But I wonder beyond that, you know. Sure, we would love that. Everybody on this podcast, I think, I am pretty safe in saying that, you know, if there were such things as, like, mid-range gothic horror films that are still being made, we would probably be there and enjoy them, right? But when it comes to mainstream audiences these days, you know, a, a movie set in the 70s or 80s is a period piece now to them. You know, that's pretty far removed for them. I wonder if a Victorian set, you know, a Victorian era set horror movie like this would have any sort of hold over, you know, current mainstream audiences. You know, would there be, could there be any sort of immediacy? Could they be scary? Well, and again, Hammer wasn't always necessarily scary, but they could always draw viewers in. And I'm wondering if that would be, for the most part, kind of an impossibility these days. Well, I think the last time that a big movie tried to do that was probably like, what, Crimson Peak, maybe? I mean... 
Crimson Peak, sure, maybe maybe the Sherlock Holmes films to look at a more yeah. successful movie. But even then, that's not really you know. But I do think there's something to be said about um, like we were talking about Andre Morel and like this, this these gentleman leads um, and and the trend of having you know a younger person in charge of things. But yet, I do think we're getting some things now that are starting to go in a different direction, and and we're seeing big success with that. I mean, like look at. Part of the reason the new Halloween works so well was Jamie Lee Curtis at the forefront, you know, bringing in. Yeah, she has sort of the history of being in that role, but she also brings gravitas to the role that a younger actor just couldn't do. You know, there's something that comes with age. You know, look at the Insidious franchise with Lynn Shay, like (laughs) putting an older actor in the lead can be really important and can work with a younger audience. But. You know, you need the support of the studio and you need, you know, the the, the franchise pull. But they, they have to, the, to roll those dice more and embrace the fact that that's going to elevate what might have otherwise been just another movie like all these other movies. Um, yeah. When you talk about maybe the most popular films that are out there right now, and Paul, I'm not taking a shot at you for this. I know you're not the biggest fan of like the Marvel movies, but you know what? The bulk of the leads in the Marvel movies are older actors. You know, uh, Ant-Man, which is like, you know, Marvel fluff, still has an actor who's nearly, you know, he's pushing 50. Um, you know, uh, uh, um, arguably like the biggest character in the entire franchise was a guy in his late 40s slash early 50s with uh, Robert Downey Jr., you know? Um, the bulk of them are like that. So, you know, Well, to I... be fair, Paul Rudd is immortal. I mean, he's not really... <laughs> yeah. He's always been the same age and will always be the same age. At 18 years old, at 18 years old, he was 30. At 55 years old, he will continue to live Somewhere there's a, there's a Paul Rudd portrait that's getting older and older and older. All I'm but... saying is, where's my Highlander remake with Paul Rudd? Oh yeah, my god! Right, right. Oh my Seriously. god! Yeah, he and, was, you know, you're joking, but how great would he be as Connor McLeod? He could nail the accents. He could do the uh, the Scottish accent, you know, like in the period flashbacks. He could do like the weird French accent. Like he could do the nod to Christophe Lambert, and then uh, you know, why not just have him sound American in the present day? Also, I'm just going to tell you when it comes to Highlander, I am never joking. So, uh, <laughs> to, to swing it back to the movie really quick because I love this scene. Oh, it's amazing. Um, and also, like, I just want to point out that it's also incredibly vampiric. Yeah, you know the way she is resurrected, her smile as she's approaching them. It it really doesn't feel like a zombie film at all in that she's sequence. A, she isn't brainless. Like she is nothing. Nothing about her performance there is connected to any zombie we've seen before or since. She's not a brainwashed. You know, of no. uh, Bedouin, you know, uh, 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 culture. She is not a shambling cannibal, you know, uh, a mindless cannibal that Romero would have had. She is kind of her own thing there. And I will say, like, that moment when she is staring right into the camera and she is approaching the camera and walks right into the lens in that moment, it is fucking terrifying. And then oh, we yeah. get this damn yeah. dream sequence, which, and you know what? I will say one thing here, real quick. I'm sorry. But the, the beheading here is so much more convincing than the one in the Gorgon. And I, I think that's right yeah. down to Gilling's direction. It's much more successful in the way it was shot and how it's kind of not lingered on in the way that it was that earlier film. But anyway, I'm sorry. I'll, and I'll and does up. this not feel like an EC Comics moment? Like with all the uh, canted angles yes. and yeah. the coloring. And it just, it feels, yeah, it just feels more fun in some ways. But it's also really creepy. 
he is one good lord choke away from being right out of an EC comic, right out of Tales right. of the Crypt. Right. Well, and I think that, you know, we've been talking about the history of zombie movies, but one thing that doesn't come up enough is zombies by region. Because when I look at this movie, of course, yes, you can see the influence it's going to have on Night of the Living Dead. But there's something about this sort of like the the British countryside, the fog, the ver- the coloring of the landscape, the, the palette of the movie that is so British. I mean, like, I mean, for lack of a letter, better term, but it's like, this would pair in a double feature with Living Dead at Manchester more... I was just oh, thinking that. Yeah, I was just thinking that. That's so true. Because so true. They, share, they share a DNA. And I don't know if that's yeah. just, like, countryside or whatever, but uh, I, I feel like there's just something about these removed British villages... And the fear of, of, of this kind of coming plague uh, that works in ways that, you know, stateside, we get it in a mall. We get it in the military industrial complex. We get it in a farmhouse because uh, those are all very like American kind of locations. But here it's it's the village and it's our small t- it's our, our sensibility. This is how it's always been. And that's under attack. You know, I I love it. I love it. Gentlemen, I am hopping off here to make one more quick drink. I will be back in just a moment. Please uh, please speak well of me. It's very on brand. <laughs> <laughs> you know, and I had three drinks prepared. I prepared for this. I was going to say, you, you sounded very prepared at the beginning. So, but Well, I, I got to tell you, it I wasn't. But I'll be right back. When I was uh, coming up here, I always bring a six-pack up. <laughs> <laughs> just in case like i'm not gonna like necessarily drink all six but like my wife watched me she's like are you taking a six pack up for your pie i was just it was a lot of judgment was was heaved my way as i walked upstairs with my six pack well the nice thing about the old rasputin russian imperial stout is that uh <laughs> it's a sipper you know um yeah I, yeah. I, I i did finish a bottle and then when i went off into the internet nexus there where i was lost for time um, I, uh, I did grab another one, but I, I could not have four of these. I would die. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Some, some of those Imperial stouts can be pretty, pretty hefty. It's, it's, it's like, it's like eating a meal. <laughs> it, it is delicious though. I have to say, um, yeah. no, it's interesting. Like me buzzed or drunk is not all that different from me sober. I just, talk more which is either a boon or a uh you know a bad thing um but i don't know i i am happy with my choices and i'm happy with this movie although hammer movies seem to suggest that it's much more easy to just like dig up a grave than i think it actually is is everybody in the Hammerverse like have really great upper body strength? Because I swear every other Hammer movie, someone's like, "Let's go dig it up," and I'm like, "Maybe I... you will." I'm gonna stay home because I can't do that. <laughs> like, well, that's a thing that happens a lot in like TV shows. Like, like I used to watch uh, Supernatural pretty religiously, and like they dug up a lot of graves in that show or dug graves in that show. And yeah, it would be like five minutes or, you know, it's like, Oh, start digging and then cut to they're done and they don't seem that tired. And you're just kind of like that. No, that doesn't track. Yeah. You you would be out for the count. <laughs> yeah. No, I mean, but like Jensen Ackles and Jared Padalecki, they they're jacked. Like the, True. These, 
this guy's like a college professor. Like I write, <laughs> I, I write TV movies for a living. I can't just go digging up graves as if it's like a you know a normal Tuesday afternoon. Right. I, yeah. I, I actually it'd be a really funny thing to see. Like if a movie treated that like as difficult as it would actually be. Like all right, let's go dig this grave up, and it's like eight hours later, and you're like five feet into a six foot grave, and you're just dying. I, I don't think, yeah, I don't think Morel would look as uh, composed as he does after fully digging a grave or burying a body. Though, to this film's credit, in the scene when they first dig up the body of the first, or, or the, the lack thereof body of the of the uh, brother, when the police arrive and catch them and think they're body snatching, I have to give the doctor credit. He's like, I, I think you should go in now. And Morel's just like, okay. Like, you know, they, <laughs> it, it kind of acknowledges that like, yeah, I don't want to dig, you know, put all this dirt back. So true. <laughs> and we were talking about like Hammer's sort of relationship with the zombie. And in some ways, like, I guess Seven Golden Vampires kind of touches on zombies a bit in a way. Or at least they feel like zombies. Yeah, I love Seven Golden Vampires. And of course, I understand that based on the nature of your show, that's a totally different episode. Uh, but I... Um, <laughs> it's all right. We could cheat. He's not here. <laughs> I, I do think that is something that's sort of lacking in uh, some of the Dracula lore of the, of the mainline Lee movies is is kind of the control of the other... Uh, the other dead, if that makes sense. Mm-hmm. When I was I was last on, we definitely talked about the BBC Dracula show. And one thing that I do appreciate is that Dracula kind of just has like zombies around because death attracts death. And um, the Shaw Brothers Dracula, Dracula the, you know, Legend of the Seven Golden Vampires, just seems to acknowledge that. It's like, well, if there's one of these, there's probably going to be a few of these. You know, that's just kind of how it goes. Yeah, yeah. And it, it has more fun with the lore. You know, and it throws stuff out there without feeling the need to, like, fully go into it. Because I don't think you even really have to. Um, but it but it makes it feel more fleshed out and interesting and, and unique. You know, that's it's one of my favorite in the whole. I mean, it it sucks that Lee isn't in it as as Dracula, but I love that movie. And I like I like this sort of revisit of of uh, zombies and other movies hint at zombies. Um, you know, Captain Clegg kind of hints at something like a zombie, even though it isn't really that it kind of plays with the idea of it. Um, yeah, but no, I, I, as, as somebody who, like I said, night living dead was sort of like my gateway into horror in a lot of ways. And, uh, so zombies are really sort of a special thing for me. Uh, when I saw this, I was just immediately in love. Well, <laughs> what I love about zombies and, you know, we've been touching about it off and on throughout this conversation is, of all the monsters, the power of allegory of the zombie is sort of unparalleled because yeah. you look at Night of the Living Dead and the allegory to the civil rights movement that's going on at the time. And then you fast forward to Dawn of the Dead and sort of the commentary on consumer culture. And then yeah. Day of the Dead is all about the military industrial complex or even this plague of the zombies. We have mentioned multiple times how it is sort of a cr- critique of imperialism and the right. appropriation of a culture to do bad. And it's, you know, I think it works because zombies usually are a faceless horde. And so are we. 
so it's very easy to put our bad juju onto those stories and explore it in that way. Whereas Dracula, who is my favorite monster slash villain of all time, is a is a different beast because yes, you can tell allegorical stories about Dracula. Um, and you know, Jinx had mentioned Taste the Blood of Dracula, and that's another movie that really kind of explores um the class system and how it utilizes uh horror in in a way to take away and and uh appropriate from people but dracula is a supervillain and so dracula's evil is is almost intangible in a way that a zombie's evil represents so much more yeah no that's that's true and you know for me when I think about zombie movies and why I was so initially attracted to it, I, I think it also speaks to like humanity's inability to sort of not only accept our own mortality, but like, like how we're, we're so tethered to our relationships and, and that can be very crippling, like in our inability to let go when someone dies and things like that. Like, you know, the whole beginning of night of the living dead is pretty much a brother and sister just sort of, talking about how annoyed they are that they still have to come to the cemetery every year and put the wreath on the grave and how I wonder how many times we've just bought the same wreath. They probably just pick them up off the graves and sell them to us again. You know, and it it just speaks to, again, like the consumer culture that the second film touches on. And then, you know, when Johnny inevitably becomes the walking dead, you know, how Barbara just wants to go to him uh, as opposed to sort of like, run from him and you know the the newscaster saying like hey you you have to burn these bodies you can't just leave them there you can't bury them like normal the fact that we would have to sort of combat our own rituals and instincts when it comes to death because we're so unwilling to give them up um and that sort of will be our undoing in a lot of ways um on top of all of the normal societal problems (laughs) of us just simply not getting along and being able to accept one another um, you know, and, and I think there's nothing scarier than a monster that just looks like your neighbor or looks like your wife or looks like your best friend. Um, and that you're not able to see the monster there because you're just, you see what you want to see. Uh, yeah. I think that's a really terrifying concept. And I think it's something we can all relate to in some ways when you think about grief and death. And, you know, I think that's a very human thing and i and i i guess at the heart of it that's why i tend to you know be more drawn to it than other monsters no i think that all makes so much sense because there's a facelessness to the zombie because the zombie is us you know it, it's more you we can project onto that in ways that these other characters seem so other if that makes sense yeah, no, it does. Um, it totally does. Yeah, I. it's well. And then, you know, the other element of it um, and in this movie, especially where it's like, here's the aristocracy subjugating the working class um, only to just you know, kill them <laughs> and then subjugate them again. <laughs> you know, it's 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 the ultimate um level of that you know of of that sort of power that they're wielding at all times and that that everyone just accepts and doesn't challenge no and i think it's a testament to this movie and also a sad fact 
of our society that these themes are still relevant now. Yeah, ter- terrifyingly relevant in some ways. <laughs> yeah. But it's yeah, I, I do I do like um and the the masks in this movie are really pretty creepy. They kind of remind me of some of the Kiss of the Vampire masquerade dance masks. Yeah. What is going on with the hair though? What is coming out of the sides of those masks? Um, good question. You know, everybody loves a mutton chop, Jinx. It's just how it goes. It I yeah, it, I don't know. <laughs> it's a little weird to me what they're trying to pull there i got i got questions i uh by the way i'm back i'm so sorry i took so long one and two i don't know if i was on mute or not that entire time so people could hear me stumbling around in the background making a drink apologies uh no i think you were because i saw the little like microphone icon on exterior initials but uh no we we were just talking about uh zombie allegory you know the usual kind of stuff that you chat about you just the normal stuff um, no, I just am really fascinated by, you know, this is a good zombie movie, but it's also a really great sort of, uh, kind of occult small town sort of thing that there, there is a little wicker man here. There is a little, the legacy, you know, the idea of yeah what happens in this village stays in this village and yikes. <laughs> does this, uh, does this count as folk horror? Do you think? I do, I do. I think that like that these masks that they're wearing would not actually be out of uh, out of the question in something like Midsummer. I think. Yeah, these these would make a really great like Halloween costume. Oh, absolutely. That that not a lot of people would get, but like the people who got it would be like super into it. You'd have that one guy being like, hey! <laughs> Plague of the Zombies, nice. <laughs> Squire Hamilton, what's going on? Now, is that symbol... Do either of you know if that symbol is actually... Is that from anything? Is that sort of... Uh, is that a part of any sort of actual ritual? Or, you know, sort of... Uh, uh, you know, voodoo? Or is it just something that was made up entirely for the film? I don't know. I can't speak to that. Uh I'm sure someone out there does, but just wondering if it's more, you know, Mark of Ibon than say, you know, <laughs> something real. Well, good question. <laughs> I mentioned it earlier, but one thing, and whenever we do these commentaries, it's easy to forget since we're watching on mute, but I, I really love James Bernard's score for this movie. It's so good. Like it's so different. You know, like it has such personality and it's this really peculiar way of sort of like how he orchestrates the strings and the it's very percussive. There's a lot of like just hammering drums and yeah, it's just it it, it really fe- it, it makes the film feel different and unique from Hammer's output um, really talk, across the board. We talk in this podcast so much about, you know, the uh the sort of building blocks of Hammer and the men who were responsible. You know, we, we've certainly paid homage to, uh, you know, Hines and Carreras and Sangster and uh, Terrence Fisher, Freddie Francis, surely the actors with Christopher Lee and Peter Cushing. Um, James Bernard is easily hit one of the most important aspects of what we think of when we think of classic mm-hmm. Hammer, I think. And I wonder if the man gets 
his 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 dues as often as he should. Well, and then also that token, you can't overlook uh, Philip Martell, who basically was the music supervisor for all of them. And, you know, it's one of those roles that people don't think about because he's not necessarily directly responsible for the score. But when you look across the history of Hammer, how he oversaw the music on pretty much every major release from the late 50s into the 70s, there's a mark there. Like, you know, this studio is a well-oiled machine in that they were able to make four movies in one year, you know, that all came out theatrically. Yeah. I mean, it gives me, like, a panic attack to think of delivering all four of those movies at once. So <laughs> It's crazy to think how, you're right, like how these four films, which are all, I mean, feel fairly unique, even though, like, when you watch this and The Reptile back-to-back, like, the shared sets are pretty obvious. But that's why they put this with, uh, you know, Dracula and Reptile with uh, uh, Rasputin, because they're like, oh, well, then people won't notice that the, those other two movies share the exact same sets. Um, but yeah. And it's, and the other thing is like, they didn't expect people to be able to watch these at home on repeat back to back. You know, they didn't home video was never even a consideration. It was people will see these in theaters and that'll be it, you know, and then, then we move on. What I do love the, the energy in just a couple of small moments there, like the push in on Morel and then how the camera swings around him when he does something as simple as blowing out the candle. Like there is, there well, is a sort of energy in this movie that, you know, maybe other, and I'm not knocking Fisher. I'm not knocking Francis. I'm not knocking Roy Ward Baker, but Gilling does bring in kind of energy to this movie that maybe wasn't, wasn't necessary in the earlier films that obviously we love, but uh, you know, it, it, it's here. Nevertheless, don't you think he it's it, Gilling sort of answering to what AIP had been doing though, with like, especially with the Corman Poe series. Uh, I could like, see that. I feel yeah, like absolutely. this is a response to that because you know, those said... movies in, infused a lot of that energy into the Gothic horror. And, 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 and this was at the time when like, cause Dracula Prince of darkness was very much hammer in, in my eyes, sort of reclaiming Gothicism because it had been spread out across other studios, other directors. A lot of people were emulating Hammer at that point. And I think that they needed to sort of re-stamp their name on that kind of process. And I think Gilling here was bringing an energy, a directorial energy that no slight to Fisher, but that just wasn't necessarily present in his style. I think you're absolutely right. And earlier I said that this wasn't so much Hammer as Amicus. But when I said that, it felt wrong because deep down I knew that it wasn't really Amicus either. I think you nailed it. I, I think this is much more AIP. Yeah. In a great way. Like I. Oh, yeah. I no, I, I adore. I adore the Corman Poe cycle, as we've talked about <laughs> on a different AI podcast. Well, and I think that's a compliment to all three of those entities that each of them put such a stamp on horror in a in a very significant way that, you know, of course they're going to start informing each other. It's what we were talking about earlier, yeah. how, you know, Plague of the Zombies informs Romero, who then in turn informs Hammer. And that was not isolated to that incident. You know, we know that Corman loved Hammer and we know that Hammer loved Vincent Price, and we know that Amicus loved them both, and it was just like, 
I would rather my studios have a love fest with each other and we get better movies because of it than than not. Totally agree. Can I just well, say here, and I know that I've talked about this so many times before on this podcast. I get it. I, I've tweeted about this so many times before as well, but damn it. Fire. It, it, it's uh, fire, man. I will, fire. <laughs> I will turn it into fucking Beavis from Beavis and Butthead. Oh, Anytime man. I see practical fire in a movie, because movie, yeah. it it's absolutely oh, gorgeous, and it in no way will ever, ever be replicated by CG. Ever. Hammer loves a fire, though. Like if you if there's if you're not certain how they're gonna get rid of a villain, they're like, let's light him up, and that's how it goes. <laughs> on fire. Yeah. Put the actor in there. Have him have to escape. No, I agree. Fire. It looks great. It's harrowing. It, it 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 and it's so visceral. Like you you feel whether the movie's scary or not, whether the movie's even working or not. If you see a person, a human being, like in a room that's completely on fire, it's upsetting and disturbing to look at. Like you're worried for that person. You um, uh, are you guys that watching? Can't this? be replicated. Oh, I'm sorry. No, no, you're fine. No, I'm just wondering if you guys are watching the same scene I am and wondering if uh, at any point it could be possible that Indiana Jones could arrive and save the day. Um, so can I, I actually tell me, was, tell me this I is was... a little temple of doom. It is. No, it's very Temple of Doom. I was just like, how did she get a whole satin dress made in Victorian era? That was my thought. <laughs> yeah. but like, uh, um, what is his plan? Like, why? He wants to zombify her, I guess, but why? Like, what? That's one thing I couldn't figure out in this movie. Like, what is his ultimate plan with her? I kind of assumed it was because he feared that they could sound the alarm because they are from the outside, you know? Mm-hmm. It's just, I... it's just weird because it seems like he was trying to seduce her for a while and now he wants to make her a zombie. Is there some oh. sort of weird, you know, yeah. thing going on there? Like that he wants her to be his slave in a different kind of way? Yep. I don't know. I, how, I, I, I was trying not to think that way in terms of like, because oh. Hammer, that would be pretty dark for a Hammer film. He leans in to kiss her yeah. there. We we know what's going to happen when he zombifies her. Yeah, I don't know. Necrophilia, I guess. I don't know. Hammer does have a history of horny bad guys, though. Like, it's not <laughs> that shocking. Mm-hmm. Um, That's true. That's true. That's why, like, when when I look at this as sort of uh, a, a prototypical movie to The Devil Rides Out, which comes later, which yeah. w- when you get there, they do share kind of a lot of, of, of familiar themes. The idea of, uh, you know, aristocracy running this secret occult for their own nefarious means. Kind of the big thing that separates them is this guy does seem to be, like, maybe more engaged with the people he's terrorizing. Whereas Charles gray and uh, devil rides out. He's like, nah, if you're not the devil, I'm not going to stop the car. You know, I... <laughs> <laughs> do you guys find it interesting at all? And I don't know. It didn't hit me until, and admittedly, like, like I said, I picked up this Blu-ray or rather DVD 20 some years ago, but revisiting the movie on this Blu-ray, like <sighs> did it hit weird at all for you guys that the, 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 there was a hero's moment there when Morel is saved by the black man barreling into the room and freeing him. And yet they couldn't, maybe they couldn't, maybe it wasn't even a consideration for them, but I do find it interesting that they couldn't let him have that hero's moment. 
because they immediately have to show him being afraid of the fire as though he's Frankenstein's monster in James Whale's movie. Like, it, it just struck me as weird that, you know, they, they couldn't afford that character, you know, the, 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 the sort of hero's moment, as it were, even though he essentially saves our lead. I mean, I think that's an interesting point. Uh, and, you know, the reality is, is that as much as we love these movies, there are arenas they could have done far better in, and that's mm-hmm. one of them. So, yeah. I mean, did did any Hammer film have a lead who was a person of color? Like, was that, I, I can't think of any offhand. Hmm. I mean, not... Not a not a significant enough lead, which is is truly unfortunate. Because yeah. I mean, I mean, later when you get into the seventies movies, there are uh, black characters who are primary characters, but they're still you know in service to the white lead storyline. Um, yeah, I mean, that's it. That's it for for all uh, going through film history for even the things we love we can look and see how things should have improved and things need to be better. And that's one of them. Yeah, that's true. When it came to, and you know, which zombie I'm talking about, but when it came to the flaming zombie who sort of barreled out there, like, am I the only one who was reminded of like the nineties era, Don post Michael Myers mask? Yeah. (laughs) Although Flaming Zombie seems like a real good Dragula challenge, so I'm going to write that. <laughs> yeah, write that one down. <laughs> now, this is such a great set piece and such a great... Like, that kind of looks Myers-ish, too, right there. A little bit, yeah. But that, uh, that's... I don't know if that's more about the mess there or more about the fact that the Myers mess just all looks so shitty if you take a step back and look at the bulk of them. Yeah. I mean, if you're not Shatner, you know you're you're wanting. I mean, I'm I'm a huge Halloween fan, but let's we can we can call it what it is. Halloween Four is one of the best Halloween movies, but easily the shittiest mask aside from Resurrection. Mm-hmm. Absolutely, easily, easily. I will defend the mask in Halloween Four only because we literally see him steal it from the drugstore. And when have you ever <laughs> bought a great mask at a drugstore? I'm just yeah, saying. I wanted True. the moment where Michael broke into the drugstore and he picked up the one mask they had, and was kind of like, "Nope, you know what? I'm just going to leave on the gauze. That's fine. I'm just going to stay wrapped up this entire movie." <laughs> what if Michael Myers me. was a real fashionista? Like he had thoughts. Yeah. Oh my god, did you... Okay, so there was that book that came out last... Uh, I want to say it was last summer. Uh, Taking Shape 2. Did either of you pick that up? I haven't. Uh, I need to get it. No, but like someone we know wrote that, right? Or someone within the community? Yes, yeah, a couple yeah. of guys. And, uh, and I'm sorry to be talking over the end of the movie when we should be wrapping up thoughts, but we got time. It's cool, man. Um, one of the things that they did... Okay, so... For anyone who doesn't know, they're both worth picking up. Uh, Taking Shape was all about the history of the making of the Halloween movies that we actually have. Taking Shape 2 was about all of the movies that we didn't get that were developed at some point, whether they they were treatments or screenplays were written or they were, you know, uh, they made it at some point into pre-production before eventually they were axed. There was one, you talk about Michael Myers being a fashionista, there was an early Halloween 4 that would have maybe it was even Halloween three uh, before season of the witch was the thing that found Michael Myers tracking Jamie Lee Curtis's Laurie 
in Chicago when she's like in her twenties and she's living, you know, like the nightlife. And there's a moment when he puts on like, I, I think a leather jacket, he still has his mask on and he basically steals a car from somebody. He even has a moment where he tosses the keys up in the air and catches them. And is basically piloting an expensive uh, convertible down the, uh, the, the streets of Chicago searching for Laurie. And I wish that movie existed so badly. Like that sounds so unbelievably bonkers. I kind of wish it were a thing. Uh, I'm into that. Also, I think that maybe we need more movies where our slashers throw on a leather jacket and live their best lives. (laughs) I love that idea. And just so you know, while you were talking, I went to Amazon and bought both those books. (laughs) Oh, nice. (laughs) That's how you know we're at the end of the podcast and I've had a few drinks and I've been meaning to buy them and read them. And I'm like a huge Halloween fan. So it needed to happen. It is great. I'm very curious. Okay. So I also bought that fear no evil two pack. It's (laughs) awesome. You're not going to regret it. You're not going to regret it. I, I, yeah, I'm bad. I always buy things during podcasts. Paul, Paul, this time next week, you and I need to be talking about that during the first 45 minutes. Yeah. Well, because the only fear no evil I knew about was the one, uh, like the Satan one, like the, the, you know, fear no evil from like 1981. He's like the devil. Director of uh, Lady in White. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah, yeah. A, is it Lelosia, I think, something like that? Yeah, yeah, I used to rent it, like, when I was, literally, for whatever reason, that was a movie, like, a buddy of mine would rent, before I was even a horror fan, like, we just liked the box art, and we'd rent it, and, like, admittedly kind of laugh at it, but, like, I watched it a hundred times when I was in high school, so, like, I've seen it a lot. <laughs> it's a weird movie. But anyway, yes, I purchased that as well, so I will watch it for next week. That is cool. So what do we think overall of The Plague of the Zombies when it comes to Hammer? Like, how does this movie rank against some of the best in the uh, in the franchise, as it were? Uh, for me, I mean, this is like one of the crown jewels of their collection because it is a true standout. You know, there are a lot of movies that kind of get lost in the noise of the era that I, I, I like Hammer's whole catalog. So it even pains me to say that. But You know what I mean, where it's like when you start thinking of great Hammer movies that really stand out, uh, there are a lot that were the second feature. And you know they're the second feature. And even if you love them, that's just sort of the the way it kind of shakes out. This may have been the second feature, but it is not. I mean, it, it is a movie that knows what it is. It loves what it is. And it has something to say. And um time has been kind to it and i think that critics would agree like and i couldn't find a real kind of negative review of this film because sort of the the assessment of the time and the assessment of now is that this was a prototypical zombie movie that helped kind of set the course yeah, absolutely yeah paul how yeah. about you how does it uh, how does it rank no, I, I totally agree. It's one, it's one of my favorites, um, not just because I'm prone to liking zombie movies. Um, I, I'm, I always like an underdog. Um, I like a movie with an interesting sort of backstory to it. I mean, this movie's an oddity. It's a risk. Um, and I think it, it exists because it was mitigated by the fact that the funding was mostly coming from 20th Century Fox. 
um, that it was part of this crazy, this, this was sort of a pitch. Um, the idea that they could make four movies this quickly that had not been done. I mean, they had, they had always made movies really quickly, but this was the first time they attempted to do it in a matter of weeks. Um, and so this was all part of this bigger sort of strange attempt at being able to maintain Bray because they were on the cusp of losing Bray Studios too. Like they had to figure out a way to make movies more cheaply. Um, and then bringing in John Gilling, um, you know, having a different perspective brought onto the film, having Andre Morel instead of one of the normal mainstays, instead of like a Cushing or a Lee makes this movie just a more impressive animal because it's not what you've seen before. Um, it's, it's unique and original and it's, yeah, you know, he kind of touched on it, but it's, it has a message. It, it feels more modern. It, it feels sort of like ushering in a new generation of hammer movies, um, in, in the best possible way. You know, it, it feels so far ahead of its time. It feels better than a lot of the movies that went on to knock off uh night of the living dead you know it, it feels more in line with what romero kind of i think was trying to do in his own way obviously in an american way um versus like the the uniquely british feel of this film but i think it it's it's a worthwhile movie to watch i think it has historical importance in the genre um, and I believe that for those who are unfamiliar with Hammer's catalog, it's it's a great movie to check out. Yeah, absolutely. Would be a great entry point even. You know, usually we, uh, you know, if you want to turn people on to Hammer, Paul, I did this with you. You know, what did I recommend? I recommend the Dracula and Frankenstein. Yeah, I mean, those yeah, are you, kind of the go-to. Yeah, you pointed but... me right to the Frankenstein <laughs> cycle. That was the first thing that I really dove into be on your recommendation. And it was awesome. <laughs> yeah. But, but even still, you know, we were talking last week with Heather Wixon about how Dracula Prince of darkness is kind of like a great hammer sampler platter. Yes, you know, it's yeah, like, if you want to know what a hammer hits. is, yeah, it's yeah, a greatest, greatest hits. <laughs> equally, even though, you know, the plague of the zombies isn't dealing with an iconic character, uh, iconic in the sense of, you know, somebody singular like Dracula or Frankenstein, or even a werewolf character, you know, the, the, the zombies here, you know, they, they're they relegated to this one feature. You know, they're not really related to anything that's come before or since. And yet, you know, for everything that this movie gets right, I think this would be a great recommendation for somebody's first Hammer, you know? It doesn't necessarily point them to what's come before with Hammer or even what would come after, but it can show them what Hammer could get so very right, you know, uh, with their productions. And uh, I don't know, having rewatched it again, I, I, I just have a newfound appreciation for this movie. And I think it's, I think it's one of their best. I think it's easily top 10, if not top five. Uh, well, I don't know that I could say top five because basically the Frankenstein cycle occupies the first, you know, six or so. Uh, that, uh, spots, that should be but... uh, when we, when we, the end of the hammer pub should be a top 10 hammer episode where we each make our own personal top tens. That would be, yes. that'd be tough. But we have how, to invite back all of our guests, too. So. <laughs> how far are you going? Are you going to take it all the way to modern day, or is that... We're, as far as I'm concerned, we're going to go right to the lodge. Nice. Nice. So that's going to take us a while still, but but that said, we're uh, we're getting there. You know, we're, we're not doing any of the, uh, you know, we've noted this before, we're not doing any of the more straightforward thrillers. We're not doing any of the swashbucklers or anything like that. I mean, we're definitely kind of hewing close to the... Uh, the gothic horror films, but, uh, but yeah, yeah. As far as I'm concerned, I'm cool with, uh, 
If Paul is, I'm I'm cool with this going. I'm right game. I'm right game to modern day. And you know that reminds me, I got to figure out some way to find it. I don't know that it's available here in the states, but I need to find a way to watch Beyond the Rave. Uh, you know what's interesting is uh, horror filmmaker Axel Carolyn uh, worked on that show, if I'm not mistaken. Oh, really? That's awesome. Yeah, because Axel is uh, not only a friend, you know, obviously through filmmaking circles, but she's a neighbor of mine. And when the world was a better place in terms of being able to get together with people, uh, we would we would get lunch, and we have frequently talked about our hammer love. And uh, I remember one day she's like, well, I have something to tell you. And I was like, I have something to tell you. And both of our reveals was that we worked at Hammer, but at different times. Um, And (laughs) she had worked on uh, Beyond the Rave in some capacity. I, of course, don't want to speak to what it was because I will probably get it wrong. But, um, yeah, she was involved at that time. I remember her seeing, she follows me on Twitter and I follow her and I remember noting like something about Hammer once and she hopped in and said something. I'm like, oh, cool. She's a fellow Hammer fan. That's cool. And then I thought like her movie Soulmate is very Hammery in a way, you know, it could almost be like just looked at as like a Hammer romance. So I don't know. It would be cool to see her working like, I, I would love to see an Axel Carolyn directed Hammer film, you know, if they got to the point where, you know, they started cranking movies out again, which I, I hope is the case someday. Also, just to bring it full circle, do you know who's stars in Beyond the Rave? No, I don't. Jamie Dornan. What? Really? I did yeah. not know that. I have not. And don't. this is, okay, so I actually know very little about it. I remember being a huge Hammer fan, obviously, before it came out. And around the time that it dropped, I remember hearing that Hammer was coming back. And I was like, holy shit. That's amazing. Incredible. What are they doing? Beyond the Rave, amazing. How can I see it? You can't. Wait, what? You know, it, it was kind of frustrating. Then eventually they came out with The Resident, and I've seen everything since. But, um, yeah, wasn't it originally like a MySpace like web series or something like that? Yeah, it was released in increments on MySpace, and I think it was 8 or 12 episodes of like 5-minute chunks, if I recall correctly. Huh. It was it was released on DVD, but it was only released in DVD on uh, PAL format in Europe. And that was already a while ago. It's it's that wildly out of print. So, <sighs> damn. I'll All start right. I'll start looking for copies. I'll see if I can find something. Because I, I I'm region free, so if I can somehow find the out of print DVD, I'll pick it up. Um, it pops up on eBay every now and then. Like I've I've seen it um, once in a while. Of course, it comes with that uh, out of print price tag, so it's usually like <laughs> forty bucks or whatever. But yeah, I mean, if you're a true collector who loves knowing that you have something no one else has, I, <laughs> I am. Yeah, <laughs> I get but, it. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I am that guy. I am eBaying. Holy shit! Okay, there it is. Right, whole and you are right about that price tag. Okay, let me. Uh, I'm just gonna go ahead. If you guys will excuse me for a second. Wow. I'm gonna kind of. Okay, just currently buying something on. Is it really that much? Yeah, no, that's really that much. It's. Um, it's not kind of press that. It's, <laughs> gonna go ahead. And, it's fine. It's gonna go it's ahead. Fine. And, yeah, just clicking. Uh, okay, therapy. so it is uh, Paul. By the way, there is there were two copies uh, available. So if you want to snag the other one, that's uh, that's on you, pal. I guess this is the thing that's finally going to push me to region free. There you go. 
I'm okay with that. All right. We are currently two and a half hours in. We are barreling our way towards three hours. I don't know what the time is looking like for you guys or if you want to hang out and talk more or if we want to go ahead and wrap it up. It's entirely up to you. Let me know. Uh, you know, I'm still sipping my beer, so it's really up to you guys. Paul, you got any beer left? Yeah. I'm good. Well, fuck it. Let's talk <laughs> about something good. else. You know what? I'm I'm fine with going as long as we need to or as long as we want to because I got to tell you, I still got about a half a drink left here. What uh what can we burn off about a half a drink too? What do you guys want to talk about? Somebody throw out a subject. <laughs> that's, da- that's dangerous. Um just not uh, Stephen King. You don't mm. want to get me started on Stephen King this week. Unless you do, in which case I will. But No, no, I think we're good. I mean, like he gets <laughs> He's a very just, good author. Yeah, brilliant author. <laughs> shaped another someone who shaped a landscape of modern horror. A friend of George Romero. There we go. On theme. Now, next. Um. <laughs> uh, Romero. Uh, you okay, know, I, I, I love Romero. We can talk about George Romero. <laughs> I've got one. Okay, Romero could work. But we were talking about something. I was going to say something. We were in the midst of another thought. Uh, it was probably around the point that I dropped out. I don't know if you guys noticed that. But we were talking about AIP. Sure. You know, obviously oh, the yeah. AIP cycle is Roger Corman through and through, right? Yep. We have those uh, those different studios, of course, right? We uh, and they were doing they were nailing a certain type of horror in that period. Of course, we had Hammer, which we talk about all the time. We have AIP. We had uh, Amicus. We had Tygen. We never really saw much in the way of crossovers, as, uh, uh, at least so far. I mean, obviously with the actors, especially with Amicus and Hammer, sure. But I was actually thinking around the time that we did the episode, Paul, with uh, Daniel Epler. You know, we had a William Castle Hammer film, and it didn't quite work because when you see the finished product, it's neither Hammer nor is it William Castle. You know, it 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 has the strengths of neither, unfortunately. But I'm wondering. It's funny, though, because I know a lot of people don't like that movie, and I understand. Because when you're looking at the old Dark House, the original James Whale film, it's it's nigh flawless. And you can't really improve on that formula. However, um, if you divorce Castle's old Dark House from the original movie and just watch it as sort of one of these like British ensemble comedic larks that happened every so capers that happened once and again... It's a good movie to just kind of throw on with some popcorn and like kind of have in the background. I watched it again a couple of years ago after being sort of one of those purists that was like, I don't think I like this. And <laughs> I, I watched it again. And once I kind of like just stepped away from like what I thought it was and just took it as it was, it's a lot of fun. Is it great in comparison to either of those catalogs? No. But is it, are there worse things you could watch in your afternoon? Absolutely. Yeah, it is, you know, it, it, it's hit and miss for me. I I appreciate what it was going for. I do think the guy who plays Pendril, like he he swings back and forth between being really charming and really funny and then just kind of falling flat, you know, depending on the scene. But it just, it, it, it led me to wonder uh, during our commentary uh, this time around, what do you think might have happened, you know, pure conjecture at this point. We're, we're, we're drinking, we're post-commentary at this point. But I'm wondering, like, what would a Roger Corman hammer have been like, for example? You know, what a... Uh, what would uh... I think we saw Roger Corman make his hammer movies with AIP. 
I, I, I mean, I think that's what they would have been. I think that's yeah. what he was doing. I think he was making, he found a way to, because he loved Hammer. He loved what they were doing. And he put his spin on it. And that's what we got with the with the post cycle. Yeah, I think the the purest distillation of what would be a, a Hammer Corman movie is either going to be House of Usher or um, mm-hmm. Mask. Or well, no, I would even I think Mask is almost like a a, a step too far in a great yeah, Mask way. is the next step. Yeah, I, I but, think yeah. But I I think either Pit and the Pendulum or the Fall of the House of the Usher are very Hammer esque because they're contained castle stories. Uh, you know, that have that kind of gothic feel. Whereas Mask also kind of goes into a surrealist territory that Hammer rarely treaded into. You right. Know? Yeah. Ma- Mask is the evolution. Mask is is sort of the next step forward. And where I think uh, AIP and Corman, I don't know, superseded uh, for the American audience what Hammer was doing. And, and, and I think in some ways it was because Hammer wasn't really on that same level or interested in going to that place that they didn't necessarily evolve in the same way. Because AIP evolved with the audience, I think, more intuitively than Hammer did. And AIP leaned into other areas of exploitation cinema, you know, um, and as did Corman. And and went into, you know, we, we talked about how you know, Hammer didn't really utilize, you know, it was, it was a, a primarily white <laughs> cast, unfortunately, whereas AIP leaned into black exploitation and, and some other things um, and bringing in other voices and other, you know, uh, people into the mix and, and made a more diverse film slate um, after that. And, and Hammer sort of stuck to certain things and and was a little less willing to change but mask of red death is one of my all-time favorite movies i I love that film yeah and i think we can see aip i think paul's absolutely right aip embraced the counterculture in ways that the the hammer model just wouldn't have been able to because of the kind of movies they made and so we actually see aip making the equivalent of hammer movies with the sort of like hippie yippy kind of era sensibility, like mm-hmm. Count Yorga is a Hammer movie. Oh yeah, by by way of hippies, uh, you know, I think that Doctor Fibes in many many ways <laughs> o- owes a huge oh, yeah. huge you know debt of honor to Hammers. So, and and I think Dracula AD uh, was was like a direct response to Count Yorga, like. I don't I don't know exactly how the years work out, but if I recall correctly, that was something that they were like, well, look at Count Yorga. We need to do something more modern. Yeah, Count Yorga comes out, I think, in 1970. And obviously we know uh, AD is 1972. So it definitely yeah. follows. I'm trying to remember when Return to Count Yorga. I have to look it up. It was 71. Wow, they they cranked out that sequel pretty fast. <laughs> <laughs> No, I, 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 I love some sort of. I love Count Yorga. I think Count Yorga is great. Um, what is that? Been... I wish a mashup had happened between Count Yorga and Blackula, and has, even Fives. You know, throw has, them all has together. Has Count Yorga come out other than the uh, Twilight Time Blu-ray? Is that still? Because that was no. kind of hard to get 
for yeah, it was, it was Twilight Time, and then Scream Factory released the um, the sequel. The sequel. Right? What, I have to tell you, when you started the sentence, you were like, "Has Count Yorga come out?" I was like, "I feel like we knew," but um... <laughs> <laughs> no, yeah, I, I have the Twilight Time Blu-ray. I just, I was, I've always wanted like a better release. I've always wanted like a nicer release for that film, and I know. In the UK, I think it has like a a decent maybe Arrow or something like a two pack of them that's like a really nice release. But I don't think the US has gotten anything other than that uh, Twilight Time. Well, and I know that at one point there was an un uh, an undeveloped sequel, a third Yorga film where he was supposed to be like living in the sewers of Los Angeles or some such. Uh, <laughs> and those are the things that I like to think about, like all of these movies. That oh we, yeah, we didn't get. Because we can imagine the ultimate sequel that probably would have never delivered in the way our imaginations. <laughs> That's so true. Um, I do love the idea of a Count Yorga 3 where he's living in sewers, though. That sounds phenomenal. <laughs> I just want yeah. to see direct sequels to all of these. I remember, you know, rather than remakes and reboots and whatnot, I, I kind of love the Doctor Sleep approach where it's like, Ah, you know that thing that you used to love back in the day? We're going to do a sequel to it. We're just going to recast everybody. But you know what's you know what the deal is. Yeah, you know, I feel like, and I can't say anything because I've been very lucky in terms of some of the films I've got to work on and the stuff I've got to do. But if someone called me and they were like, hey, do you want to make a Count Yorga sequel now? The answer is yes. Uh, and, <laughs> and then I would spend like a year panicking over selecting the right actor to play Count, like Count Yorga because obviously Robert Quarry is dead. So. Okay, it, it, you, don't, you don't have a year. You have 20 seconds. Who would you cast? Is Count Yorga? Yes. Um, I mean, honestly, Cage would be fucking great, right? Like, <laughs> would you, wait, 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 wait. Yes, wouldn't please. You want to keep Cage, <laughs> wouldn't you want to keep Cage for Fibes? No, I mean, I feel like Fibes is like, Cage? I don't know. That's a great question. Either way, we need Idris Elba as Memoalda for Blackula. I'm just throwing that out there. Like, how I great would he? It. Yeah, I and Blackula is one of those movies that's just such a surprisingly good film. Like, and it's so deeply felt and has such an introspective ending. It, it, that movie really blew me away. <laughs> and uh, you know, I I I know that Johnny Depp was talked about it at one point with Edgar Wright. But if uh, want to go ahead and go back to seventies horror and maybe creating like a shared universe with all these characters, we got to have Kolchak. And instead of Johnny Depp, I'm just throwing this out there. How about Brian Cranston instead? Brian Cranston would be a great successor to Darren McGavin. Oh yeah, I, yeah. yeah. I think that's that's a really brilliant choice. Uh, I'm very precious about Kolchak. It's it's one of those things where I, I almost loathe to think of anyone else in that role. Uh, I know they I, I know <laughs> yeah. they did the remake, but I feel like someone like Cranston could could do it justice, you know? I would want him to play, I would want it to start the year after. I don't want a present-day Kolchak. I know they tried that once, and it was kind of neat for its own, like, its own thing, the Stuart Townsend thing. That wasn't Kolchak at all to me, but it was still kind of fun for what I was. But if you're going to do Kolchak again, if you're going to do the big screen, just say that all the stuff that we've already seen in love has happened, reintroduce the character, and just go from there. Yeah, I think that's that's kind of a great way back into all of these characters is just pick it back up and write the story in a way that it's new for people who are new to it. And, you know, a a loving homage to those who aren't. 
Well, it's the, I mean, look at Mad Max Fury Road, you know, like it works. If you do it well, you put in effort, you can just make it a sequel. You don't have to reboot it. You don't have to negate the the continuity of the franchise because a lot of those series and franchises didn't really have that much continuity to begin with other than the character himself. You know, there's every once in a while there'd be little references, but ultimately each new adventure was just that a brand new adventure it wasn't you know based on all of this crazy mythology you know i think part of it though is modern audiences are used to these we're becoming more used to long-running stories where every little nuance has to matter which i'm a huge fan of a a a well-told story but there's also something special about a monster of the week format you know that that works too, and and we shouldn't let go of that in it entirely. I yeah. think, but I think you I think you nailed it when you mentioned Mad Max Fury Road. Like that's that's the sweet spot between the two. It doesn't mm-hmm. wipe away the continuity that exists in all the movies that you already love, but you know it, it's not beholden to that continuity either. It, but right. it makes it. But at the same time, it makes it more special that it does connect to those movies. I remember that George Miller co-wrote a four issue series of comic books for Vertigo. Uh, around the time that Fury Road came out, that basically it was the backstory for all the characters. You added a, you had a Furiosa prequel. Uh, you had a uh, Immortan Joe prequel. You had a two issue Mad Max prequel, and in the first five or six pages, Mad Max's backstory, and this is drawn with Tom Hardy's likeness, but it's the events of the first three movies. So you see the Mel Gibson movies, but drawn with the Tom Hardy likeness telling you, hey, those movies still exist. Those stories still exist. They're still back there. They're just not super important to what we're doing right now. So we're just, you know, giving a wink and a nod. They happened. Let's tell a brand new story. You know, and I love that. I love that approach. No, I think that would be, that's great. And it it allows so much more wiggle room too. And I kind of wish that's what Hammer would do with, I kind of wish that's what Hammer would do with Dracula and Frankenstein and all of those. You know, it that's the thing. Hammer yeah. has been back now for, what, 13 years? And I love a lot of what they've done. Like, The Resident was so-so, but I adore um, Let Me In. I actually, you know, I'm one of the rare uh, rare guys who uh, who prefers the, you know, Let Me In to Let the Right One In. I think it's a better film. Um, and I can talk at length about why. I love Wakewood. I really enjoyed the quiet ones. I love the two women in black movies. I think the lodge was really impactful. You know, I dig all of that stuff. And yet at the same time, I'm like, guys, when you open each of your movies with that hammer style animated logo with Dracula and Frankenstein and the mummy and all of those characters that we love, that's a promise that you're making that we're going to see those characters again, that you're not currently fulfilling. Give us those characters again, but just don't wipe away what came before. You want to do a Captain Kronos movie? Do a Captain Kronos movie. Just It doesn't have to be a remake. Do a sequel with a different actor. Bring Dracula back and cast a really great actor who can evoke Christopher Lee while doing his own thing. And then just tell a brand new story with him. Same thing with Frankenstein. Uh, I want to write a Captain Kronos movie. <laughs> Starring, I want to. Wa- I want to watch it. I do. Yeah. Uh, starring Matthew Good. Oh wow! That's Tell me I'm wrong. Tell me I'm wrong. I won't. That's <laughs> I great. That's casting. great. I love that. I you know why? Because people forget I'm a producer too. I know what good casting is. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so tell me this. I for the hell of it. I 
just because I was missing this, and this was back in like 2010, 2011, I wrote essentially a fan fiction script with uh, Hammer characters. Who would you cast as Frankenstein and Dracula today? Frankenstein and Dracula today. Um, but they I mean, have. To, here's the thing: the way I wrote it, I wrote it as a love letter to old Hammer. So I wrote it basically the way that I want to see the movies brought back, which is all of those older movies happened. Which means that whoever you cast, they're essentially like whoever you cast as Frankenstein is playing Cushing's Frankenstein. Now they can do their own thing, but all of those other movies happened. Same thing with Dracula. Can they be older? Yes. Then Ian McKellen is is Frankenstein. There's no question. Um, uh, but Dracula, because Dracula doesn't age, you need someone imperious and, um, but with that kind of level of class, uh, that's a trickier cast. I mean, obviously, I'm the de- kind of. Th- oh, sorry. Go ahead. No, go ahead, please. I would say Benedict Cumberbatch. Ah, that's what I was going to think. <laughs> I was like, ben- now it sounds like I'm copying you. I was like, Benedict no. Cumberbatch kind of has that seriousness. Now, let me piggyback off that and offer an alternative suggestion that's adjacent. Uh, for Sherlock fans, what about Andrew Scott, who played Moriarty? I think he would be a brilliant Dracula. Really? I can't see it. But I love him. Well, you need someone who revels in evil well, and he sure does. He does. He does. I can. I can see that. Yeah. I can. I I do love him, and I think he is sadly like underserved by every role he has played since Moriarty. Like I remember, I was so excited when he popped up in Victor Frankenstein, and then he was kind of. And I like that movie, but he was just you know it it felt like he was kind of underused. Same thing with uh, Skyfall, or was this? No, 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 no. Uh, Yeah, it was. It was uh, Spectre. 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 I'm sorry. Uh, same thing with Spectre when he popped up I was like yes and then you know he's just by the time you get to the end of the movie you're just kind of like oh could have done more with him you know uh, no I think that's I think that's a really cool choice actually I wonder though you know he's somebody who can revel in evil I, I, I look at him and I'm wondering if he couldn't play good and he couldn't play good with like a burning intensity I wonder how somebody like him would be playing um, da, 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 uh, like Van Helsing I think he would be brilliant. I, he is he is truly one of those actors who can do it, you know. If we if we could convince him to do it, um this is a weird poll, but man, I would love to see Daniel Day Lewis play Dracula. <laughs> uh well he did once. He did. Yeah. <laughs> he, he he played Dracula on stage. Uh and in fact, Paul, when this is done, I'll send you photos because I have them. Um, oh, okay. Yeah, I didn't know that. <laughs> yeah, because I'm, uh, I am very much a Dracula enthusiast, as I have mentioned. Um, and I love, like, weird niche Dracula things. And he played Dracula on stage uh, and Peter with Peter Capaldi. Peter Capaldi, I believe, played um, oh, okay. Jonathan Harker, if I'm not mistaken. And uh, they had a, um, a female Van Helsing. Maybe. I think oh. I'm correct. Yeah. But uh, I have Michael, to... can I throw one thing out now that we've said it? And because I'm a huge Doctor Who fan and I love how he played him, uh, at a certain point anyway, the first season I kind of hated him, but the second two seasons were amazing. Peter Capaldi as, as an old Frankenstein. Yeah, I mean, here's the thing. I, I am a very long, long time Doctor Who fan. I think you and I have exchanged DMs about Big Finish Audio. <laughs> and uh, I, I am 
a huge fan of Capaldi's take on the Doctor, and I've been watching Doctor Who since I was a kid. Uh, my first episode was Terror of the Zygons with Tom Baker. Oh, um, that's a good first episode. I, I remember it very specifically. But the thing is, is like when the show was reintroduced in 2005, of course I love Eccleston, I love Tennant, I love Smith. Uh, you know, and I, I, I love all the modern Doctors, but what was really interesting was watching this kind of younger, sexier version of the Doctor kind of take hold for the modern day. And I, I, I loved those stories. And I think some really brilliant writing was done by both Russell T. Davies and Stephen Moffat as showrunners. Yes. But um, when Capaldi came in, there was something that really landed with me. Because to me, the Doctor is old and cranky. And always has been, because that's the Doctor I grew up with. And he finally was again. And so for those three years of him uh he's brilliant and i've always loved him i I loved him in lair of the white worm and so you know to have him here and uh playing the the greatest character in fiction really as far as i'm concerned (laughs) uh uh, well it, it goes full circle you know like not to just like be like speaking hyperbolically when we were talking about the era of of the gentleman hero we still do have that in the form of the doctor. And of course the gentleman hero, you know, evolves as to what that means. And, and, uh, but regardless of space and time, it's, it's the use of intellect to solve the problem as opposed to violence. And yeah, the more modern show does have a lot more zip bang explosion, but at the end of the day, the doctor, um, whatever form they may take still uses smarts. And I think that's why I'm still drawn to that character for that reason were you at all put off by the only thing i love capaldi i think he's a brilliant actor um the only thing that and i think i swear i think it was built into his version of the character by moffat and then it was quick the whole thing with him having capaldi's face in the first place is paid off later on when he has to kind of regain it's his mission statement, like who he is when he realizes what his face means. And we have that great flashback in his second season to uh, the fires of Pompeii, you know, with Tenet holding out his hand and saving, uh, was it Cassius? I think who was the yeah. character in that and saving he and his family. And then it, it, you know, the whole thing about him carrying that face is meant to hold him to the line and who he was meant to be. I think that's great. But I don't, I, you know, we, we have to weather an entire season of him being kind of a bastard and not even being cranky, but being somebody who's kind of callous towards the loss of life. You know, he, he shrugs at the thing, the sorts of things that would have enraged Smith's 11 or Tenet's 10 or even Eccleston's nine, you know? And so that's what kind of put me off. And honestly, like as much of a Whovian as I was at that point, I was ready to give up the show until that first Christmas special, which is what, to me, finally gave him a little bit of humanity. And then I stuck around for this, his second season. And then once his second season kicked off, I was like, okay, I really love what he's doing. To the point where, by the time we reached the end of Capaldi's run, I absolutely adored him. Like, I, I cried during in a movie theater that happened to play his final episode. I was watching with a friend of mine. I wept at the end of his final episode. And you know what I will say is uh, 
I get it. I get it. I think that after the events of um, the day of the doctor, it, it, it's very bizarre that he would be so rage filled, but in a way it also made sense. I was one of the, the fans who really enjoyed his first season, even if recognizing the shift in the character, because I trusted that the, the, there was a reason and I trusted that they would bring it back. And I, I, I think that when the character, the, the character of the doctor is so grand in scope, right? That, we forget that he's made terrible decisions. Like what makes him a great hero is that he's not always. And what really, I think a big boon to the first season of Capaldi. And of course it's been spoken about many times, but it, it, it really needs to be said is the introduction of Michelle Gomez as Missy in the master. in that first season was very crucial because she for once, the master brought the humanity that the doctor had lost, even in her evilness. And when <laughs> and, and, and when they that. and when they reconciled that with each other, it really showed growth for both of them. And I think that you know the doctor and the master, when they're whoever plays the master during whatever era of the doctor, needs to reflect who that doctor is. And, you know, John Sim and David Tennant have that same frenetic, intense energy, whereas Capaldi and Gomez have this like simmering darkness and the need for redemption and that they carried that journey together is very, very key. And by the end of Capaldi's run, I think he was one of the greatest doctors that we've ever had and had some of the greatest stories. One of the single best hours of television, bar none, is heaven sent when it's just Peter Capaldi alone in that castle for an hour trying to get back to Clara. It's brilliant. Two billion years of story in one hour. Perfect. And he, no one could have done it but him. <laughs> no, I do love that. The the ice cracking just bit by bit is yeah. uh, just, you you know, again, yeah, in an hour of storytelling, like you feel that. You know, you, you, you feel the weight of it and you, you feel as weathered as he is by the end of it. I, I do love Capaldi in that role. I really do. And I love Missy. Um, it does bug me, you know, now that you mention it, that I, the master is always meant to be evil, right? That's that's all he or she is ever meant to be. Right. Um, and yet at the same time, you know, I, obviously not with the older masters uh even even when they try and make a connection i'm thinking about somebody like uh was it anthony ainsley in the yeah. 80s you know when he has that great moment with peter davison when davison actually you know talk about the doctor making bad decisions and not always being a hero when he elects to let ainsley's master die and ainsley has that kind of like weirdly human moment when he reaches out to him and he's kind of like would you really kill your own brother you know and they they don't let him say the word brother you know, before he dies. But, um, you know, even going forward, obviously, like, oh, uh, da, 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 uh, Eric Roberts' version of the character. You know, that was a one-off, even though I, I kind of like his version of the Master. It's a lot of fun. But uh, when we get to John Sim, you know, by the time we get to the end of it, it's such a great moment at the end of time when it seems like it's a vengeful act that ends his run there, sure, but it also feels a little like redemption. It feels like we understand the master. It feels like he was driven to that, and him understanding that he was driven to it, 
and electing to save the Doctor rather than just letting him die. It, it, it felt as much like he was saving the Doctor as he was destroying Razalon. And so when Sim reappears alongside, and how great was it to have a multi-master story for once, sure, but when he reappears along Missy and he's just evil for evil's sake and he does something despicable to Bill, it's kind of like, really? You know, and then you go from Missy who has like this amazing redemptive arc and then you go on to Jodie Whittaker's run and her master and he's every bit as evil as, you know, the master ever was. And it's like, you know, as much as the doctor can learn and grow in every incarnation, as different as that character can be in every incarnation, there's still growth there. And it feels like with the master, there is never any, it's always climbing that hill and then falling down the same damn hill every single time. Sure. But let me put, and I don't want to keep boring Paul with all of this doctor who talk. So I, but I will say this, how do you know? So Sasha Dewan, who I think is brilliant is the, is the new master in Jodie Whittaker's era. Oh, and yeah. I, I, I think he really, really owns that role and, and gives the manic energy that's needed. But how do you know that Sasha Dewan's version of the master is the version that follows Missy? How do we know it's not before because of the timeline? Yeah, true, true. Because if you go back to one of the last times we saw Missy uh, with Clara when they're on Scarrow, this is one of my, this is, this is to me the relationship of the doctor and the master. And it goes beyond just the, the show. This is good Shakespearean writing. These two characters love each other. And I know that people who know me from my show and hear me talk about queer horror and the queer connection of thing, that's not like, so I'm not actually doing a queer read of this. I'm just talking about there are different ways that you can love and be connected to a person. And these people are inter, interconnected in a way that like no one can separate. She, she has a speech in that episode where she says, you know, consider the doctor. And she tells a story and she said, you know, it doesn't matter which one. They're all the doctor to me. And it, it speaks to this long history that they've had. And Clara asks, how do you know, how long have you known him? And she's like, well, I've known him since he was a little girl, which seemed like a throwaway line until now that we know at one point the doctor was a little girl, but they didn't learn that until Sasha Dewan was the master. So Missy may still have her redemption arc. She just might be a later master. That's all I'm telling you. Okay. I can see that. Okay. And plus, I mean, that would make a hell of a lot more sense given uh, the, the the final moment that we see Missy because, uh, you know, that seemed fairly final. Um, yeah, no, I, I adore Doctor Who. I really do. Um, <laughs> and plus, you know, uh, to, to bring it back to Hammer Pub, Paul, I, mm. I know you've seen a lot of new Who, but man, I'm telling you, there is a season of Tom Baker back in the 70s. I think it was his... I want to say his third season or fourth season that is full of horror gems that could have easily been. I, they were obvious to me. They were obviously influenced by hammer. Like when, when, when you get the, like the brain of Morbius or the image of the Fendal or uh horror at Fang rock, those are hammer horror films that just happen to have the doctor in them. Oh, 100%. I mean, Tom Baker had actually at one point planned on doing a doctor who movie with Vincent price. Uh, wow called doctor who uh meets scratch man and it's literally the doctor going into this like alt universe where he meets the devil who had been played by vincent price and credit where credits due many 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 years later tom baker took the script that he had pitched and turned it into a novel 
that was released. And I, I read it on on a plane ride to Germany, and it was amazing because the whole time <laughs> I was picturing this 1970s metaphysical movie with Tom Baker <laughs> and Vincent Price. And I think that if you love either of those people and are even only partially attached to Doctor Who, it's worth reading. So, I saw where that novel came out. I have yet to read it, but I, I need to. I absolutely need to. Um, and again, tying it to Hammer, there is a great Hammer podcast with, uh, I believe, Elizabeth Miles and... Uh, Paul Cornell. Paul Cornell. Uh, <laughs> and Paul Cornell wants... I don't know that it's... I don't know that you can find it that easily online anymore, but he did this... Uh, uh, I want to say it was back. It was around the time that Tenet left. So around 2009-2010 leading up to Christmas, he was posting all of these cool things online Paul Cornell was, uh, who's a great writer in his own right and he's written for Who and he's written comic books and whatnot. Does a great Hammer podcast. Anyway, he wrote this story for Christmas Day called The Last Doctor. And it's basically like he writes it as though it's the final Doctor Who story. Like it's it's the Dark Knight Returns for the Doctor. It's Logan for the Doctor, <laughs> and it is one of the most beautiful pieces of writing regarding that character that I've ever read. Like if you can mm. seek it out, and to me, like whether or not people consider it canon or not, to me it's canon. To me, that is the final story involving that character. So well written is it? Like if you get the chance, seek it out. It takes about ten minutes to read and. I defy you not to share shed at least like one tear reading it. It's amazing. I mean, that show makes me cry all the time anyway. So I'm not, <laughs> <laughs> I, uh, yeah, I mean, I've, I, I'm definitely the, uh, doctor who novice. So that's why I've been staying so silent. I I've only, I watched the, uh, Christopher Eccleston season. And then I watched all of the David Tennant stuff. So that that's is that's the uh, the extent of my Doctor Who knowledge, but I did really like what I watched. <laughs> so wait, you I haven't seen any Matt more. Smith? Uh, no, I haven't seen any Matt Smith. Oh, Paul, Matt Smith is great. I Tennant is my favorite new Who Doctor, uh, even though I love them all. Uh, but Smith does something that Tennant does, which is uh, he. And Michael, tell me if you think I'm wrong about this, but he has these amazing moments where he seems like. Uh, He's like Willy Wonka. He has these incredible moments where he seems like uh, a, a guardian and really warm and friendly and kind. And then he can turn like that and be absolutely terrifying. And, to, and uh, he's supposed to be. That, I mean, that's when yes. I said, you know, for me, the doctor is an old cranky man. That's true because he's not nice. He, I mean, he seems nice and he often is nice in, in practice. But, I mean, this is the person who, for, you know, thousands of years, thought he killed his own people, you know? There is a, uh, do you remember A Good Man Goes to War? Um, I forget the character, but the the, the military leader, uh, I forget his name, damn it. But when he enters the room after he's defeated, the doctor spins around and his eyes light up and he grins. And he approaches him with like this almost sing-songy voice. And you think, well, that's a weird way for him to approach, you know, uh, an enemy that he's just bested. And he's greeting him like an old friend. And he gives this monologue. And over the course of the monologue, he slowly, organically changes into something absolutely terrifying. 
Uh, and he, he, so he goes from like this kindly, you know, quirky, you know, lad to somebody who seems like he's going to burn this man's life down and he does it in a breath and it's absolutely fucking incredible. Yeah. And I cannot remember the character's name. Damn it. Anyway, (laughs) we are nearly three and a quarter hours in as much as I'm enjoying this conversation. I'm wondering how much longer this podcast can possibly go before collapsing under its own weight. I think we should probably call it a day. What do you guys think? Yeah, it sounds good to me. I mean, this has been fun. We've we've crossed Romero and Pooh and the Plague of the Zombies. and It's been an epic conversation. Yeah, we have covered many, many bases. Um, and we didn't even talk about monkey shines. So there it is, you know. We well, that's next time you come on, the, the first <laughs> tangent we go on should be a monkey shines tangent. Um, yes, please. Love Monkey Shines. <laughs> I, it's great. It's so good. I will say this. Michael, you've been on twice now. It, it's only fair to offer this to you if you would like to come back. Uh, I'm not trying to be sly in that. If you never want to come back, I completely understand, too. Um, <laughs> but if you do want to come back, is there any upcoming... Eh, eh, oh, holy shit. Can you tell I'm four and a half drinks in? Is there any upcoming Hammer film you would like to call in advance that you would love to come back for? Um, well, I mean, I feel like some of the ones I have the most to say about are coming like a little later in the timeline. Cause we're what still 1966. Uh, well, I guess we're going to bust into the seventies here pretty soon. Um, I would love to rejoin you for a Dracula at some point. And if that's 72, I wouldn't be mad about it. Just saying okay. we have, uh, yeah, we have, uh, risen from the grave, taste the blood of scars and then we have AD 1972. Those are all in our future. Great. I mean, I love all of those. Um, the Dracula movies are some of my faves. If uh, if you were to walk around my place, I do have theatrical framed theatrical posters of uh, Ris- Risen from the Grave and uh, Legend of the Seven Golden uh, here, as well as I do have a Bride's poster. Um, oh my god! But uh, I I really revel in the in the the mania of 72 and satanic rights. Um, so I'm always happy. Plus anytime I get to talk about satanic rights, uh, I love to, you know, just jaw about Joanna Lumley, who I think is a treasure. Um, on the Lumley but, episode, we have to talk a little bit about uh, steel and Sapphire. If that's cool. Absolutely. Uh, you know, that would be a, a return to me shouting out my pals over at big finish as well. So, um, yes, I, uh, keep me in mind for Dracula, but if you think anything else seems uh, up up my alley, I am I'm very happy to to see if I can return. All right, now where can folks find you at online, and uh, what can we keep an eye out for from you in the future? Uh, well, you can always find me on Twitter at Michael Verati. I'm sure my name is in the description, so just make sure that's two R's and one T. Uh, uh, last time I was on, I had mentioned that my new. Uh, Screen Life series, So Far So Close, was premiering on Deku. It has since come out. Uh, I think people like it because, uh, you know, that's what I'm hearing. But, of course, they're not going to tell me if they don't. But that's out there, (laughs) and you can check it out. Uh, I am doing a little bit of a return to traditional filmmaking. Uh, I recently finished up a short called uh, What's Left Inside. I think this is the first time I've mentioned it in an interview, but I'm going to be starting sending it to festivals soon. So uh, I might as well. Um, I had actually written this sort of at the beginning of the pandemic, not realizing it was going to take a year (laughs) or more to 
to to pass. So some of the things in it are kind of funny in retrospect. But I wrote a story about a man who goes in, who is broken up with sort of on the eve of a national lockdown. I will stress that this story is not about COVID. I chose to make it about something else. Uh, and how while he's stuck inside, he starts to suspect that he's not alone and sort of the the mental degradation and uh, manifestation of what that means. And it, it was filmed a while ago, but because I made it in sort of an art house way with one actor and uh, a crew just to be COVID safe, uh, we've been working on the post-production of it for a while and that's about to come out. And it's sort of like a creature story. Um, and I'm very excited about that. And that's coming soon. Uh, and I'll have some announcements here about some uh, feature films coming uh, that I have been dying to tell people about. But, uh, you know, my, peep, my, my peeps tell me I'm not allowed to say anything. So, um, <laughs> but yeah, just work, work, work. Right, right, right. Uh, some cool stuff coming. Keep your eyes out for the short film. Go watch So Far, So Close. Um, and I'm on Twitter. If you hadn't got enough of me from this i i don't know what to tell you you know <laughs> <laughs> well hey thank you again for coming back and for chatting uh, the plague of the zombies with us we really appreciate it it's my pleasure thank you for having me all right now paul where can folks find you at online uh yeah i am at the always modest paul is great 2000 handle on twitter uh, where you can find me rambling about movies and stuff Good deal. All right, folks. Thanks so much for listening this time around. As always, please make certain to like, subscribe, share, use the comment section below. Scream at us on Facebook and Twitter. That's at Scream Addicts, and I'm at Jinx1981. Until next time, folks, thanks so much, and have a great weekend.